We human beings are a species that's not only capable of acting on hidden motives, we're designed to do it. Our brains are built to act in our self-interest while at the same time trying hard not to appear selfish in front of other people. And in order to throw them off the trail, our brains often keep us, our conscious minds, in the dark. The less we know of our own ugly motives, the easier it is to hide them from others. Self-deception is therefore strategic, a ploy our brains use to look good while behaving badly. Net. This is going to be a fantastic episode. Yeah, I am very excited about this episode. This is a book that had been on my reading list forever, and we had this kind of break in our planned books, and it's been sitting at the back of my Kindle. <laughs> and so I I think I just texted you. I was like, yo, we should finally do this yep. book because I knew I would never get around to reading it unless we did an episode on it. And I'm very happy we did. It was wonderful. I've had this on my to read list. I hadn't bought it. So it wasn't sitting on my Kindle, but I also had been like wanting to read it anyway. Yeah. I feel like this book comes up in discussions with people. It's come up with like I've seen it linked to in blogs here and there. It's starting to come up more now. Yeah. I think partially because of so maybe we should say the book, obviously, if you don't see it in your podcast player, is The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hansen and Kevin Simler. And what I was going to say is Robin Hansen's kind of been in the press right. the last couple of weeks because of I don't remember exactly what the problem was. He said something about sex differences represented in different professions. No, I didn't see this. I actually want to Google this right now. It was a very like uncontroversial thing to say, but it made him sound kind of I think a little robotic and maybe mm. cold, but you know, he's an economist, right? It's that comes with the territory. Comes yeah. with the territory. <laughs> and so in, in a typical anti-fragile sense, him being, you know, thrust into the public limelight for these comments made his book sell more. Sex redistribution. That was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is he making the same point that like Peterson makes? Yeah. About like when you have the situation where like let's say just making it up, but some small percentage of men are basically getting all the women, mm -hmm. right? Is that what he's talking about? Yeah, I think okay. it was something related to that. Because like Peterson was talking about that when it comes to the that Toronto kid who, I forget, did he shoot people, ran over people with his car? There's something that the one guy who was- Yeah. Well, it's, I mean- It was like a terrorist attack for lack of- yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's come up with some of the school shooter stuff too. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a fairly compelling thesis to explain that behavior, but the general thesis that there will be more, you know, chaotic males when there's a very uneven sex distribution makes sense. Yeah. Right. And I think that was probably what Robin was getting at. I, I haven't read his comments. Well, I think it's also just the uh, well, so I don't know about it as a solution, as a proposed solution. Right. That's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the other thing. <laughs> that's a whole nother like animal that I don't even want to tackle but i yeah. i do find it believable that if you have like 90 percent of males or whatever you know some large percentage of males sexually frustrated it won't lead to good things well that's the problem in india yeah or has been i don't know if it still is but well, there's also the gender uh there it's a gender imbalance too there's not even 50 50 so many fewer women right i heard in china too yeah i think in china too well there's oh god i was reading some article recently there's an extremely popular app in china where men can just watch attractive women do stuff like not sexual stuff just go shopping and eat food instead of like porn hub it's like life hub or something yeah it's like life hub and it's and there are these men living in bachelor colonies of like all men in a small kind of like city area and they're all using these apps and then you can use microtransactions to like pay for stuff for these girls who are live streaming their lives 
And it's like a thing that's normal there because the gender imbalance. They might have a market in San Francisco. They <laughs> yeah, they probably would. <laughs> sorry, San Francisco people. I'm not sorry. That was mean. <laughs> Maybe CMU too. Yeah, <laughs> Carnegie Mellon would also be a candidate. <laughs> Carnegie Mellon, MIT, maybe some other places. Oh, man. Um, All right. I will stop with that. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) yeah. So anyway, I think that was probably part of why his name has been out there recently. But I found the book because I really like Kevin Simler's blog, Melting Asphalt. It's a good blog. And he has the one article that we've referenced a couple times on the show about crony beliefs, how if you feel emotionally defensive of an idea of yours that someone else challenges. That usually means that you don't have a reason-based belief. You have like a socially motivated belief. And that comes up a lot in this book, which I thought was an interesting tie-in from his past works. But I suppose we should introduce quickly, you know, the gist of the book. So basically, you know, the, the title of the book obviously comes from the elephant in the room, Right, which is, as they say in the book, an important issue that people are reluctant to acknowledge or address, right? A social yeah. taboo. And then they say the elephant in the brain is an important but unacknowledged feature of how our minds work, an introspective taboo. So it's this big part of kind of all of our motivations and thinking throughout life that is there and identifiable, but we deliberately and subconsciously gloss over it in favor of nicer explanations of things. Well, I think what's really interesting, well, what I, well one thing, taking a step back, what I thought what they did really, really well in this book is use analogies to help you understand this, right? Because when you first encounter that, so we've been talking about stuff like this, like related to self and identity. And like, we've been talking about it for a few months now on this show. But if somebody came into this cold, I could see them being presented with this concept and being like, what are you talking about? Like, of course, I know how I think and why I make decisions. And like, that would be the, you know, they'd probably feel emotional about that when you present them with this thesis that, you know, you don't know why you're making your own decisions. Right. So I thought they did a really good job of using analogies, which we'll get into, like the press secretary. And I mean, just like on a very broad level, I thought one thing that's really interesting is when you look at this and then you also look at why seemingly all human beings do this makes you think there's like a survival advantage to it too. So they also brought in a little bit of evolution, not a little bit, a lot of evolution in here. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah, so it makes you think there's like a survival advantage to not being as that introspective. Right. I think we kind of see that too, right? It's like even in real life, like when you get way too introspective, I think we had this conversation about meditation. Mm -hmm. Like there are pros and cons of meditating. I think you have to like strike a balance. But when you get way too into your own sort of head with meditation, you don't feel that motivated to accomplish no. things, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, there's a tiger about to kill me. I guess it's okay. It's part of the cosmic consciousness. So yeah. I won't fight back, right? Well, it reminds me a lot of, it was either Sapiens or Homo Deus where Harari has that line that the human mind can't really comprehend death. So mm. whenever we start to think about it too much, eventually we just sort of give up thinking about it and kind of gloss over it and right. move on, right? That's sort of what our minds do yep. is we just prefer not to look at a lot of things in our heads. And if we do, we only look at them briefly and right. then try to gloss over them with something and move on. Yeah. And that's kind of what a lot of this book is about is that uh, especially when it comes to interacting with other people, we have these stated reasons for doing things. And then there's the, you know, the elephant in the brain, the underlying you know, more selfish motive for doing it that's usually at the heart of it and is usually a better explainer for why we are doing these things. Because most of the stated reasons just don't hold up. Yeah. Right. You know, one thing I thought of as I was even just reading the beginning, 
Remember how I think it was on the Daily Rituals episode we were talking about, at least for me, I said I work pretty well in coffee shops. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, as I was reading this book, they were talking about how there's all these sort of like subconscious processes that go on around like when there's other people around. And I was thinking why I work better around other people than like if I'm just like by myself in a quiet room. Maybe I'm just like showing off to other people. Could be. It might just be what it is. Or when you're around other people, you feel more like I have to work. Right. Yeah. And maybe when I'm listening to music, it almost simulates to some level of my brain that there are others in the room or something. There's some type of activity going on in the room. So my subconscious personality that wants to really show off <laughs> is activated and it's like, all right, we should be working. Should be working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when it's quiet, it's like, eh, no one's here to watch. So who cares? <laughs> it's the unstated goal of open office spaces. Yeah. Right. You can't hide if you're <laughs> out in the open in front of everyone. You have to keep working. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyway, I, that was like a random thing I thought of as when I was reading the intro, I was like, wait a minute, hmm. maybe there's stuff going on here that I don't even want to look at too closely. <laughs> That's yeah. the the tricky thing with the book is by the time you get to the end of it, and hopefully by the time you get to the end of this podcast, you'll think about what the underlying motives for pretty much everything you do might actually be, which is an uncomfortable thing to do and especially uncomfortable to bring up in conversation with <laughs> <Yeah>. other people. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to notice they're there. Yeah. It's also useful, though, for like figuring out other people right? Like what's making them tick? Because there could be a stated reason they give you for something, but then there's the underlying reason, exactly, which is usually not the same, whether they know it or not. I think an example that'll be really familiar to a lot of people listening to this who have been on for some of our past episodes are a lot of the biases and heuristics we've talked about before. Yeah. So we come back to, we're going to come back to education later in the episode, but the, I think parents who believe that college is a good idea, right? For their kids, That's usually not necessarily because they've looked at the evidence very carefully. It's because one, they've already paid to send a kid to college. And so they're like, well, now if I think that college isn't a good use of money, then I've wasted $200,000 or whatever. Or, you know, they went through college and they don't want to think that they wasted four years of their life, right? You get that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And there's also always like a cost benefit analysis too that needs to be done there. Because it's like when a lot of people in older generation went to college, you could like go to college on like 4k a year or something yeah. right like that's why whenever people say like oh i worked to pay for school it's like you would have to work as like an investment banker to pay for your school now uh-huh. <laughs> yeah working your way through college <laughs> is not quite as feasible as no. it used to be i mean if you go to you know a state school or a community college or something it's doable right yeah. but yeah like you're not gonna pay for carnegie mellon while working at subway <laughs> you have to be a really good day trader or something yeah. maybe with crypto somebody was able to yeah do exactly it, but only for a semester you're mining in your dorm room using <laughs> yeah. that free uh campus electricity that's <laughs> that's the secret but maybe before we jump into part one of the book they have this thesis outline in the intro that we- that's a good business idea actually I just thought of like oh start start like a uh, a mining company a in cloud dorm mining rooms. company in yeah. dorm rooms <laughs> yeah that could actually work I mean, until the school realizes yeah. that uh, shuts it down <laughs> using all of the electricity <laughs> their bill just goes up like <laughs> ridiculous double enough. the electricity bill for uh, the dorm in the course of a month it's like all right something suspicious is going on here I'm just charging my iPhone yeah exactly. <laughs> They've got one of those police like infrared scanners they use to find weed gardens, but now they're using them to find Bitcoin mining rigs. I bet someone's tried this at CMU. Guaranteed somebody has tried it. I knew people doing it at CMU. Yeah, I was there. But But back then, it wasn't quite as energy intensive to mine this stuff. But yeah, so the way the book is laid out is part one is 
all about the biological and psychological reasons that we hide our motives from ourselves and others. And then part two digs into a bunch of explanations from common areas. And so just before we hop into part one, they outline their thesis sort of on these four points that one, people are judging us all the time. Two, because others are judging us, we're eager to look good. So we emphasize our pretty motives and downplay our ugly ones, right? It's not lying, but it's not being totally honest. Yep. This applies not just to our words, but also to our thoughts. So we will also trick ourselves to look better to other people because we don't have total control over our thoughts and cognition, which we talked about in past episodes. We'll get back into more of it later. And then in some areas that are especially polarized, like politics, we're quick to point out when others' motives are more selfish than they claim. But for ourselves and in areas like medicine, we prefer to believe that we all have pretty motives or we all have good ideas. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, we all have underlying selfish motives for most of this stuff. Yep. And that's kind of what this book is exploring, is trying to dig out what those selfish motives might be and how they actually better explain a lot of these behaviors. Yeah, so we can hop into part one here. So they've got, I think it's six chapters on kind of the six main biological social reasons that we do this. And the first one is this animal behavior around social grooming. And they use the example from monkeys. Yeah, that was super interesting. So like monkeys will sit around and, you know, pick stuff off of each other's backs. But the amount of time they spend doing it far exceeds the amount of time necessary to actually keep each other clean. Right. It was like by a huge margin. Too. Yeah, it I was... think they said they'll spend like 20% of their day yeah. <laughs> doing this social grooming when they would only need to spend maybe 0.5% of their day. It was like a 20x difference or something. It was like a huge percentage of their yeah. time. And the amount of time spent on it didn't scale with the size of the monkeys. Right. It scaled with the size of their social groups. Yeah. And that people would fight, not people, sorry, monkeys would fight each other for the right to groom high-ranking monkeys. Right, right. <laughs> like they would be like squaring off for the right to do a favor for the more politically favorable monkey, I guess. Which Alpha, yeah. It was hilarious, though, because I was thinking about, like, big companies while I was reading about that. And I was like, this is exactly, exact this is exactly what happens. Like, yeah. people will fight to, like, give the presentation or to, like, you know, like, people don't want to do the actual work, but they want to be, like, if it's for a big boss, then people will do the work. Or the interns that fight over who brings the coffee. Yep. We're all just monkeys. Yep. I'm just monkeys. Sorry if that offends people, but we should do uh, chimpanzee politics at some point. I've heard that book is really good. Yeah, I'm down. I think that's part of what they're drawing from in this section, too. I thought they quoted. I think they might. Yeah. But basically, there's this this element of we do things that on the surface look pro-social. You know, it seems like we're helping out other monkeys by cleaning their backs. But really, what we're doing is showing the rest of the group of monkeys that we are the kind of monkey who will take care of other monkeys, yeah. right? So we will spend a lot of time grooming others because we want everyone else to know that, hey, we're a good group member and right. we're helpful and you know compassionate and we want to gain favor with the person that is getting the favor. Exactly. So it looks like you're doing this nice altruistic social thing when really you're increasing your social standing. Well, and that's a, a common theme throughout the book is how like altruistic behavior is not quite what it seems. They're yeah. not saying that charity is bad, but they're just saying that your motives not just your motives, but any creature that engages in altruism, there are often reciprocal benefits they're looking for. Exactly. They use this example of birds too. Yeah. And they say, so the birds they're talking about are called babblers. They say altruistic babblers develop a kind of credit among their group mates, uh, what the researcher calls prestige status. And that status earns them at least two different perks, one of which is mating opportunities. Males with greater prestige get to mate more often with the females of the group. 
And the other perk of high prestige is a reduced risk of being kicked out of the group. If the beta has earned a lot of prestige by being useful to the group, the alpha is less likely to evict him. Right. So they're mostly helping out and showing their generosity in order to have sex and not get kicked out of the clan. Yeah. <laughs> Which it seemed logical. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about it, and we'll come back to examples like this later, but take a like a club or like a social group. Yeah. If you're thinking like a student organization on campus or a religious group, right, you're going to contribute more to it to, you know, one, make yourself more attractive to the group, either as a sex partner or as an ally. Yeah. And two, to, you know, not get kicked out of it (laughs) because not contributors get kicked out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But then where this gets kind of interesting is there's this whole element of knowledge suppression. And so even though these are, you know, big motivators for why we do this stuff, we actually hide it from ourselves because other people are so good at reading into our intentions. Yeah. So you're not you're not thinking as you're doing these types of activities or the monkeys are not necessarily thinking like, oh, if I do this, then I get that. Right. Because the danger is that if you are thinking that, then other people can probably read into that as well. And then you're going to get kicked out of the group because you're a sociopath. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like, I mean, we've all seen examples of this. Oh, there totally are people like that, that you've come across. Yeah. Well, you come across somebody trying to sell something. Right. And if they're really just trying to make the sale, that's fairly obvious. Yeah. Because they have just, you can almost sense it. It makes you a little uneasy. Or when someone's very overtly transactional. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, okay, so I'm going to do this for you and then you're going to do this for me it feels much better when the other person's just like, oh, I'll just do this for you. And then right. they might come back like six months from that point and they might ask you for something, but it doesn't feel like a quid pro quo thing at that point because it's not like, okay, you did this, so I do that, right? It's just, we just do this because we're friends. Yeah. You know, like, like I don't count how many intros you do for me and you don't count <laughs> how many intros I do for you. You're exactly. like, you have like a board behind your monitor, like six from six from Neil, I've given him eight, where's the next two, <laughs> right? That would, that would be weird. And we don't like when people do that. Yeah. So I think that's where to their point of like knowledge suppression, even though we don't consciously think about that because we get very turned off when other people do that or if we read that into other people. Right. At some level, we're all doing that basically. Yeah. It doesn't mean the motivation's not there. Right. Like if you help somebody eight times and they don't help you at all, you're going to be like something in your brain is going to basically be like, don't help that person again. Yeah. Because they're not going to pay you back. (laughs) But like it would be very rude to be thinking that way and say that. Exactly. You could you could make that decision even though you wouldn't have said in the beginning that if you don't help me too, I won't help you, right? So like both of those things happen, yeah, right? Which is when you get a sense that there is some degree of knowledge suppression going on. Which is really cool once you have that realization. It's cool and also a little scary where you're you're like, I don't really know who's in this head here. <laughs> I like know of him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the hard thing with a lot of this is that in some ways it's a little depressing, mm. right? Because you want to think of yourself as a generally good altruistic person. Yeah. And then you dig into all of this and it's kind of like, oh, no, it's true. I mean, <laughs> this pretty much applies to everyone. Yep. And then I don't know. It, it just makes it seems like there's less good in the world. Yeah. Less <laughs> good in the world. It's just it's a very different perspective. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, they get to when they get into the, some of the deeper examples, like they do say there are like humans have well maybe other creatures do as well we don't we would never know really but like we can choose to go further but just knowing we have these motivations in the back of our brain or like it is partially motivating all yeah. of these types of actions because i think they were talking about self-sacrifice at one point like martyrs right towards the end and they were like how would that evolutionarily have ever happened right but that seems to be a standard thing throughout yeah. history right at least human history that there are martyrs but yeah it's like 
it is possible to go past these survival instincts, but right, they can get to their extreme where they become detrimental, but they're yeah. good on the way. Right. And the same thing, martyrs is one side, but then the other side is like self-sacrifice to like save somebody else. That happens all the time too. Yeah. You know, so it, it does exist. It's just we're more selfish than we think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're more selfish than we let ourselves think. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, I found it just to be the craziest thing in this book of just like how little you know the person that's inside of you. Yeah, the person driving. Yeah. Well, they, they've got a great example in here. The press secretary thing is. Yeah, so the press good. secretary that you're a lot of us like to think we're the king sitting on the throne right. making decisions, but really we're the person kind of like <laughs> standing next to him saying, ah, oh, excellent choice, sire. Yeah. Right. We're just kind of observing and saying, oh, yeah, that was a great call. Well, it kind of reminds me of, I think, Maybe it's Peterson who talks about this. There's definitely one of our other episodes of uh, like why you can't stick to a diet. Oh, yeah. It was the which book was that? It was definitely a book we did. Yeah, because there was like the two selves, right? The narrating self and the experiencing self. Was that Inner Game of Tennis? No, no, no. It was much more recent than that. We need the book list up. Maybe the listeners can help us. Yeah, <laughs> that's if this is live. Like, call in and tell us which book we're thinking. Here's about. a quiz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if we're live, call in and let <laughs> us know which episode we're trying to remember. <laughs> you get a free code. That would actually be kind of cool if someday we had live episodes. I think it was Homo Deus, actually. Mm. Anyway, but that's exactly like it's the same idea. Yeah, very same idea. The king, like your whispering person, which is who what we think of as us. That person might be like, yeah, you should really not be eating that Snickers bar right now. Yeah. But then he, the king really wants to eat a Snickers bar and you're probably going to eat the Snickers bar. Yeah. <laughs> so like we've all done things where you're just like, why did I do that? Yeah. But that's because you're not the king. Exactly. You're not actually in charge. <laughs> yeah. You're along for the ride. So the, the second place that these tendencies come from is competition. Right. And one of the things they really stress is that normally when we think of competition driving human evolution we're thinking of competition with the environment and other animals yeah but the biggest competitive force is ourselves right so a lot of our you know we became smarter than most of the animals we would reasonably encounter a long time ago so why do we keep getting smarter because we had to outsmart each other and so it's this infinite rat race against one another to become smarter and better and that you know has continued throughout all of history and so since we compete with each other we have some of these tendencies to, you know, act in one way out of a motive that we believe and that we project is altruistic and other interested while having a deeper self-interested motivation for it. Yeah. And there's this element then of like social status, right? So we developed the ability to judge other people's status primarily by these two metrics of dominance and prestige, right? And the dominance is what you get from being able to intimidate others and prestige is what you get from being an impressive human being. Yeah. And we are pretty much always trying to increase one of those. One or the other. Yeah. yeah. One of the other for ourselves. And most of the things that we do are either prestige seeking or dominance seeking. Right. And that kind of explains a lot of these underlying motivations for doing some of this stuff that we get to through the rest of the book. Yeah. I find like just even a lot of the like the ways that they've broken this down really helped to like give some clarity to different feelings that we all get yeah right like um the envy one was good the envy one was really interesting yeah yeah i was like a little surprised at how insightful that was i was like okay wow that makes a lot of sense because like especially if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint the prestige thing is probably zero sum which is what they're talking about it might not be so zero sum today maybe it is zero sum globally but like in your friend group i actually take my conscious brain says the opposite of that where if your friends do well it's probably gonna help you too 
Yeah. Right. Where it's like, I think we've talked about this. It's like if our entire friend group just keeps kicking ass, that's how you have things like the PayPal mafia happen. Exactly. I mean, we see that happen too with like our own friend group too. So like conscious brain knows that this is not necessarily true, but what they bring here is, uh, I'm just going to read it from here. But the prestige seeking itself is more nearly a zero sum game, which helps explain why we sometimes feel pangs of envy at even a close friend's success. Which is like really interesting because we've definitely all been there. Oh, yeah. And you're like, why do I feel that way? Because you know that that's stupid, right? But But you still feel it. You still feel it. Yeah. I mean, that's why there was that whole chapter in 12 Rules for Life, right? Judge yourself based on who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. Right. Because it's so easy to play this prestige comparison game. And, you know, obviously there's like a lot of spotlight effect where we just focus on the good and yeah, the, the absolute best parts. Those of you who are still on Facebook, right, getting <laughs> barraged by people's like perfectly curated life, right? It's pretty easy to get sucked in by this because the other thing they talk about a lot here is signals, right? And signaling. Yeah. Because that's a good way for us to show our status in the dominance hierarchy, right? right. Or the prestige hierarchy. And most obvious symbols are, you know, things like a peacock's tail or, you know, perfect skin right. or height or physical fitness, right? And all of these are signals for health yeah. or, you know, sexual fitness, right? But then we also have all of our modern signals, which are like an expensive watch or leisure time or trips. I think the thing that really tied this part together for me was when they say um, the best signals, the most honest ones are expensive. Yeah. So what that cleared up for me is like, so right now, right, we definitely value like when somebody is in good shape, we value that obviously much more than if they're fat. Yeah. Right. But like historically, when somebody was fat, that was like considered like, wow, that person's fat. That's amazing. It's amazing. They have that much food. They have that much food. Right. So that's an expensive signal at that point in time. It's like nobody had enough food to get fat. So if you got fat, man. Yeah. Good for you. (laughs) Maybe that's why our bodies can like get fat pretty easily if we can get surplus food. Maybe your body is like, Hey, I got extra food. Let's show it off. And it's also good to store the calories. Yeah, I think from it's a historical, not historical, evolutionary standpoint as well. We probably didn't live long enough for heart disease as much. I mean, it's definitely not a sexual selection thing. No, I don't think yeah. you get like attracted to fatness, but it was a prestige thing for sure for somebody right. to be fat. But yeah, now it's like more expensive to actually be in good shape. Yeah. Because there's an abundance of calories. Healthy foods are more expensive, yeah. right? And having time to exercise instead of sitting at a computer for 12 hours a day. It shows that you're like... So that you have time. You can afford that. Yeah. And... It's a signal. Yeah, it's a signal. Pretty reliable signal yeah. too. Well, in effect, that's probably why... One reason why things like Facebook and Instagram, you know, have done so well. Because it's like, those are basically just tools for signaling. Yeah. Right. They really are just social signaling tools. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, look at me, I'm traveling. That means I can afford to travel. That means I can take time off from working and still have enough money to travel and right. do all these cool things. And well, and then it's funny when the signals, it kind of highlights too when signals can be deceiving, right? So I, the example I always give are the lifestyle entrepreneurs living in like Bali, Indonesia. Yep. Right. And they, the Instagram signal is, hey, look at me. I'm like crushing it at life. I can live in this amazing place and, you know, work from the beach and stuff. But, you know, the underlying of that is like, well, if you're only making 1500 a month, you can't live many places comfortably. Yeah. Right. Pretty much nowhere in the U.S. at that point. Yeah. I mean, middle America. Yeah, you could live in like Kansas pretty comfortably. On $1,500 a month? I think so. If you didn't have any kids. Yeah. If it was just you, maybe. Yeah. If it was just you and no kids, no debt. Yeah. 500 for your apartment or something. 300 for your apartment. Yeah. You could probably do it. 
You live in Pittsburgh on 1500 a month if you're yeah. careful about it. Wouldn't be that much fun. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be, be as much fun as Bali. You wouldn't be living in Southside. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be as much fun as Bali. <laughs> um, but I know what you mean, though. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's false signaling because like you're acting as if you're making like just a ridiculous amount of money by US standards, but it's really you're making might be making a ridiculous amount of money by Bali standards. Bali standards, but it's not saying a ton. Right. Yeah. Especially because you're usually signaling not to people who live and are from Bali, but you're signaling to people in the US. Exactly. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, that's really what they're getting at here is that a lot of our behaviors can be explained by competitive signaling. Yeah. Right. You know, why do people post these Instagram travel and food photos? It's not because you know, they're necessarily practicing their photography or that's, that's what they'll say. <laughs> they want to practice their photography and stuff, but really they want to show off that they're, you know, a romantic connoisseur and, you know, can afford to travel places. Right. Yeah. You know, why do people wear expensive watches or drive fancy cars? Right. It's a signal that you have money. Yeah, like exactly. All of that. Well, it was also, I think this was in here that maybe it was in this section or came later, but that a lot of the signals that you see in the natural world are like useless. Yeah. Like they're just there for literally just for signaling purposes. And that actually makes luxury consumption make so much more sense. It's our version of it's our version of, of the peacock tail, right? It's exactly like, that. That is a really inconvenient thing if you want to fly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. It makes the fact that like we like we've all we all spend money on things that are not necessary. It just makes that make so much more sense to why you feel a drive to do that. It's our version of the peacock tail. Yeah. Like no one's buying a Rolex to tell time, <laughs> you know? <No>. <laughs> well, it's like taking someone out to an expensive meal on the first date. Yeah. Right. And this is actually one area where I think that there is like a there is sexual sense to men paying for like the first date out at least. All right. That's a controversial statement. I, I know. No, I'm no. just kidding. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it, I think it is a surprisingly I'm like. I'm just trying to stir up some <laughs> But I mean, just based on like how our mating dance typically goes where it's women choosing men right like men have to demonstrate fitness fitness and the best way for us to do that is like conspicuous consumption yeah right it's like spending a lot of money is right. a good signal that you can be a good provider so that's i mean that's definitely that makes sense why that culturally seems to have developed in a lot of places yeah because like men are not necessarily judging women so much on their ability to conspicuously consume it's not as important yeah what does it mean i think well, because it's like women want the most fit man and men mostly just like want as many women as possible, <laughs> right? On, on like the biological level. I'm not saying, you know, in practice, but well, actually that's only partially true, right? Because you want somebody who is going to be like very complementary genetics wise, right? Yeah. That's what ends up being the most attractive thing. Well, and can also, um, I think we talked about this. It was a Joe Rogan episode where it's like the husband and wife couple was on oh yeah yeah yeah. it was the uh weinstein episode with his wife that was a good one yeah what was her name i forget his wife's name anyway they were both really interesting they were great and i think she also taught at evergreen right oh really okay. yeah because they were both teaching there and i think she taught something about sexual evolution in humans it, it was something related to that she knew like everything about it well she brought up i think it was yeah it was definitely her who brought up the hot versus beautiful thing yeah I found that to be fascinating because it makes so much sense. That was an interesting distinction. So just to like, I'll give my butchered version of it. To get the real version, go listen to the episode. Yeah. We'll definitely link to it uh, in the show notes, which you can find at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. You can. But basically to summarize, it was, you know, men will want to mate with a hot woman, but they don't necessarily want to settle down with her. Right. And they're they're not going to be motivated at all to settle down with her versus beautiful women or a capable woman who 
obviously are physically attractive, but also bring other attributes to the table. And maybe she didn't get into as much detail on what those attributes were, but it was like stability, like mentally secure, somewhat confident, right? Yeah. Like there's definitely attributes. And, and we we all know the difference when we meet like a beautiful woman. It's not just beautiful physically. There's definitely another aspect of it too, or like a personality. Like, I don't know. It's hard to put it into words. I mean, someone you could bring home to your mom. Yeah, exactly. That's probably the best way to summarize it. Probably the easiest way to, if we want to put it into something that's like hard to quantify, but you know it when you feel it. Exactly. Right. That's exactly it. Right. And so her point was that a lot of the advertisements that are out there for like beauty products and fashion products, they're really actually focusing on just the hotness side. Yeah. And like implying that this is what's going to make you attractive to men, which is true. Well, like, you know, certain makeup products, things like that, they will make you attractive to men, but they might not make you attractive in the way you're trying to be attractive. Right. You know, like, so she was saying that that could be a cause for like unhappiness in people who are buying these products thinking it's going to do one thing, but then it leads to the opposite. And then they wonder like, you know, how come like I can't get a boyfriend because... Because you're advertising hotness instead of beauty. Yeah, you might be sending the wrong signals from like a subconscious perspective. Right. Because it's not like you're consciously thinking about like when you meet a girl, you're not like consciously thinking about that girl is hot versus that girl is beautiful. It's just like you can just sort of tell... I think about it now since listening to that episode. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely like before, you probably weren't thinking about it. No, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like there's definitely a, but there is a difference when you start looking for it. You're like, I can tell. Yeah. Take home to your mom is actually the best way to. That seems like I, she might have said that in the episode too. Yeah. I, I feel like I didn't invent that explanation. I like that a lot, actually. Because <laughs> that, well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Anyway, we're, I don't even know how we got on that tangent. Well, signals. Yeah. It signals. It, it all ties together. Our tangents always tie. <laughs> All right. Thing number three is norms. Right. So what makes us kind of special as a species is that we have these societal norms that aren't necessarily biologically developed, but are things that are in, you know, the intersubjective, right? They're not individual ideas or objective truths, but they're things that we all kind of agree on. And so we have this these societal norms. And we expect everyone else to form them to a certain degree. And this is where gossip and reputation come in because we use gossip to tell other people in our group about when other people aren't following norms. And we know that if we don't follow norms, then we will be gossiped about and we will lose reputation and lose face within the group. I feel like this one was fairly straightforward. I mean, where it gets relevant is that it's the reason that a lot of our selfish intentions are hidden from us because there's a norm against outward bragging, selfishness, right, self-absorption, and for good reason too, right? Because we don't want to think that someone else is super selfish because then we won't trust them, right? Yeah. So then you know that you can't seem super selfish right? because people won't trust you. And that's where a lot of this norm enforcement comes in. Well, and I think we should make a distinction that when you say like, you know, oh yeah, that you shouldn't be super selfish. It's like, that's also a trouble I have with like talking about a lot of this stuff because we the pronouns we use are so based on the idea of self, but that's not really what we're referring to. They're insufficient. So yeah, like when you're saying you know, right? It's like, you know, at some level, but it's not like your conscious brain is thinking, well, I can't appear selfish. So they're going to think I'm self, right? It's like, it's happening at a different level. Yeah. But it's still, it's the entity that comprises you. It's the king. Yeah. (laughs) It's the elephant. I also found in this chapter, the one other thing I, I liked was the first explanation I've ever found or seen that gives like the reason everybody gossips. Why is gossip like cross cultures everywhere that there are humans, like people gossip? Yeah. So like, why does that even exist? Right. And it seems like they made it pretty clear that it's a way to 
enforce reputation and norms. Yeah, which is really important. Yeah. That needs to exist for people to care about their reputation. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise it's a free option to do anything you want. There's no consequence. Yeah, do anything you want. No one's going to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is where I think that it can be kind of naive to say things like, oh, well, you should never gossip. Right. Yeah. It's like you shouldn't be known as a gossip. Yeah. But you should gossip some. Especially if somebody deserves it, right? If someone does something bad to you, right, like you should tell other people who might affiliate with them. Yeah. Right. Like I trust those recommendations a lot. Yeah. When I'm deciding to work with people. Right. Well, and we've both had that where different situations where you're like, well, what do you think about that person? Because I know you did some work with them. And then if you're like, oh, no, they're not worth the time or the money or whatever, they're not going to follow through on what they said. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's like, very useful information to know. Like that's that is important. I think where gossiping can be bad is like obsessive information gathering, right? So trying to like pull out too much gossip about people and maybe even like non-contextual gossip, right? So if I don't know, I can't it's one of these things where it's hard <laughs> to put my finger on it, but there's a point where it's like bad. Yeah. And there's a point where it seems fine. Well, the definite point where it's definitely bad where is um is if somebody's doing it like false gossip, like making something up. That's bad. Right. That's obviously bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're right though. There's definitely a point where it's like too much. Well, I think there's also the there's the gossip that's like, oh, did you hear that like Neil and this girl like hooked up? Right. And that one's interesting because, and we'll get to some of this later in the book, but me sharing that is kind of just like me trying to prove my value to the group. Right. It's like, look at all this information I have on people. Right. So if you stay, if you keep me in the group, you get all this information. Exactly. But then it also has the backfire effect of now other people know that if I find out something about them, I'm going to (laughs) go tell everyone. Right. And that's where it gets bad. That's a good point. Yeah. I wonder if that's like, okay, this is now where this is going to be a question that I know you don't know the answer to. Is being a gossip learned behavior or genetic? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Because I'm trying to like imagine why that would ever have been advantageous for somebody to be a gossip. So is it like a mutation of some sort or is it like some learned behavior gone into overdrive? Yeah, could be learned behavior as a way to get attention. Yeah. Right. And then you just read or it gets reinforced early on or something and just becomes part of what you do. Yeah. I'm sure you've met people who, you know, like shit on other people a lot. Oh, all the time. Right. And that's very clearly a, you know, way to get attention and try to feel good. Yeah. Right. But then that has the same backfire effect where if you're hanging out with someone who's shitting on other people, then you probably can expect they are going to shit on you when you're not around. Right. Right. Which is a problem. Right. Then you're probably not going to want to hang out with them too much. (laughs) Um, Have you read Lying by Sam Harris or online? No. It's really good. It's very short. You can read it in one sitting. And he basically just makes the case in the book that you should pretty much never lie. Hmm. Oh, I think Ideal recommended this at some point. Yeah, it's it's very good. He's saying it was really good. Yeah, it's like a speech, right? It's not long. Future made you think episode, maybe it could be. Yeah, I mean, the point that he makes in the book that has stuck with me the most is that telling small lies in front of friends erodes their trust in you about those kinds of small lies. Yeah, makes sense. And so I I had this conversation with someone where. I was with them and they forgot to do something. And so they texted a lie about why they forgot to do it to their friend. So to this third party. Yeah, to this third party. And like I was there and witnessed it. Right. And it wasn't it was like a fairly harmless lie. Right. But immediately I was like, oh, if they ever say something like that to me, that is probably a lie. Right. Or and even if it's not probably a lie, but now you're going to suspect. Now you're going to think it. Exactly. Yeah. 
which is why I mean the point Harris makes in the book too is you know with kids and with um, significant others especially yeah right it's like not lying to each other but lying to other people in front of them yeah can kind of necessarily erode trust right right and even if it doesn't consciously it should on some level right well it does I'm sure on some level yeah, yeah it definitely does right but that's one of those things too where once you read it you're like oh wow yeah it's a yeah. really good point and now you see people doing it and then it immediately makes you think oh okay I. I can't trust them quite as much anymore. But then the hardest part is trying to get yourself to stop doing it. Right. Because we all tell so many little white lies all the time. Even lies you tell to yourself. Yeah, that's it. Those are another thing where it's like, we all do that. It's like, oh, I was too tired to go to the gym yesterday. Or like, I only ate that thing because I did something good. So I was yeah. rewarding myself. Right? It's like, there's all these white lies we even tell ourselves. But there's probably on some level you're eroding trust between the king and the whisperer anyway. That too. When you're doing that. Yeah. So the king is like way less likely to listen to the whisperer the next time. <laughs> well, that's kind of the thing it's with like willpower. I willpower, guess. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's actually the analogy. Is, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of that analogy. King and the whisperer. Yeah. The king whisperer. Well, it's very similar to we talked about this before, right? Like the elephant and the rider is the one that Chip and Dan Heath use in Switch. Yeah. Uh, the horses and the chariot driver is Plato's version, right? It's a really old metaphor. Right. The king and the whisperer is kind of fun, though. It's a nice take on it. I like that. <laughs> Makes me think of like Game of Thrones or something. Yeah. Like. I was thinking like Lord of the Rings, yeah. right? When you've got the really snaky looking guy and old Thorin, yeah. right? So good times. Yeah. I know it is. This is this is a like I actually feel like I'm learning as we're talking about this. Yeah, it's fun. It's like becoming more concrete. That's why this is a great book. Yeah. It's like I feel like we're getting more as we go through it. So the fourth reason is cheating. Yeah. Right. So in order to cheat people, we need to be able to hide our intentions because we're really good at sniffing out cheaters. But we also need kind of excuses to cheat. Right. So they, they give the example of drinking in public by putting the beer in a brown paper bag. Yeah, I love that right? example. <laughs> Everybody knows what's going on, yeah. but including the cops, including the cops, <laughs> but putting it in a bag gives them an out to not do anything about it. Right. Right. Which allows them to kind of cheat the system and allows you to cheat the system by creating this kind of inner subjective reality. Yeah. Like, well, I didn't see anything. So yeah, I didn't see like, anything. Yeah. So it's fine. Right. Yeah. It's like the vape pens are kind of like that, too. Right. Right. Because if you're not pretty familiar with them, it's pretty hard to tell which ones are like nicotine and which ones are weed. Right. Somebody who's never used one would have no idea which is which. Well, it's also like all the stores that sell pipes. Yeah. It's like, these are pipes for tobacco. It's like, mm, these are bombs know. for tobacco. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is a vaporizer for tobacco. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like that, though. But it's probably like you walk down St. Mark's and that's like there's pipe stores all over the place. And those yeah. are like very clearly not for tobacco. <laughs> but probably, again, by saying it's for tobacco, it gives you just enough cover. Gives you an out. To, yeah, exactly. I wonder if that's the same with like some of the... Actually, no, that's probably not the same. I was going to say if it's the same with like Uber being a taxi company or not being a taxi company. When it's like, was there some of that of that effect going on earlier on before they were getting regulated? Like where it's slightly different enough that the regulators could just be like, okay, yeah, it's not the same. And then they don't have to do anything for a while for a while until their constituents are just up in arms about it. Yeah. Because it did seem like for a while, nobody cared. And then all of a sudden, it was like Austin got had that whole thing happen. And it was only once they started displacing the taxi company. Yeah. <laughs> once the taxi union started losing all their money, it was like, okay, we need to do something. Because I remember when I first started using Uber, like the rep around it was just really good. Like people yeah. were like, oh, this is helping people make extra money. And like, it was like all happy and then like over the years now it's become like a very dystopian thing that I still use 
but I don't have like a good feeling when I use it. You know, like oh. well, I feel like with Uber though, that was just more all the Travis Kalanick stuff. Yeah, I think than so. The employee was treated. No, it's definitely like media and press and like yeah. me being influenced by other people, especially Adil, who always talks shit about Uber. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, <laughs> but it's definitely sunk in Adil. So now every time <laughs> I feel bad now every time I use Uber and not Lyft. I just always use Lyft because I get Delta miles. Oh, there you go. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> but that's actually that's a good example of something you know much later in the book, right? Finding ways to encourage good behavior that you wouldn't do otherwise right it's like cognitively i don't like uber yeah and i would prefer to use lyft but i that's not enough of a motivation right it's like recycling Mm. right i like to recycle but But it's not easy i'm not going to seek out a recycling right right? if i'm carrying a water bottle and there's only a trash can trash yeah but monster yeah i know (laughs) well this is like way on tangent now but did i send you that danish study on grocery bags no So they did this big study in Denmark on what bags have the lowest impact on the environment. Okay. And the best bags for the environment are plastic bags. I kind of believe it, but explain why, how that works. It's it's a combination of energy required to create them. Okay. Transportation costs, likelihood of reuse, like storage materials used, like factoring in everything. Those, you know, those bulkier reusable bags, one, don't get reused that much. Mm. And two, are way more energy intensive and resource intensive to create. And then even if they degrade a little bit better, they take up a lot more space. Mm. Right. And so as long as there is, you know, still some like landfill we can dump plastic into, the plastic bags are just significantly better for the environment. And it's like not even close. Uh, I'll look up the study and put it in the show notes. But it's, yeah, it's something like, 40 to one. Oh my god for plastic over paper you have to use a paper bag like 40 times to get to one yeah for it to be as envir- like as environmentally friendly as using plastic or is it 40 plastic bags for one no no, no. so like you could use 40 plastic bags or one paper bag oh wow right that's a huge difference yeah <laughs> that also i mean that reminded me of i think we've talked about it on the show too but the electric cars being powered by coal power plants yeah, but that one I think is different though because you get so much better economies of scale from a coal power plant than oh, from a gas burning car. No, 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 right? that's that's definitely true. Yeah, no, but the the CO two impact is significantly oh. worse with coal than with gas. Like gas is way cleaner than coal. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, coal is like horrible for the environment. But well, that's why all the superchargers are going to be solar powered. Yeah, that makes the most sense, honestly. But it's it's like the argument like if China started using electric cars today. It would not be good. It would be horrible for the environment. <laughs> you think Beijing is unlivable yeah. now. Drop a bunch of Teslas and see what happens. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. We've talked about this before, too. It's like cutting off fossil fuels is like a terrible idea. Yeah, especially the instant type of cutting off. Yeah, that whole like, we need to get off fossil fuels now. It's yeah. like, well, we got a lot of steps. I mean, for one, farming equipment. I mean, I think we can. We can. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, yeah, short term. To just be like, okay, there's a law against possible. I've heard that proposal, not in the US, but I've heard that being proposed in some countries. Yeah. I thought it was like somewhere in Europe. Well, Germany has a law on the books. Oh, really? I think they have to be off. Well, it's just cars though. Okay. I think all cars have to be electric by 2025, 2030. It's something like that, which seems- Seems doable, yeah. Fairly reasonable. It seems doable, yeah. It's like 12 years if it's 2030. That's probably why BMW is pushing the i-series so hard, right? 
Uh, I'm surprised Audi hasn't come out with anything yet. They must have something in the works. I'm sure they will, yeah. That electric Porsche looks really nice. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it is beautiful. If someone wants to buy that or hook up a yeah. hook up a sponsorship deal with Porsche, that's going to be the uh, <laughs> tier one for our Patreon. <laughs> you buy us a Porsche. <laughs> and we will drive to your house in it and record an episode with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good deal. That's a good deal. What what tier is that they have to buy? The, they have to buy the car. That's the, that's the Porsche tier. <laughs> yeah, if you go to uh, Porsche.com slash think, <laughs> you'll get 20% off uh, your car. Well, the Bill Simmons podcast had uh, BMW as a sponsor, but there was no code. Oh, uh, okay. There's just, there just an awareness thing. Oh, we'll get to that later. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We're getting there. We're but- getting there. But next up is uh, self-deception. So this is the fifth of six reasons that this elephant exists. And so we like sometimes we need to deceive ourselves, right, in order to succeed. One example that they cite in the book is that if you want to win a game of chicken, right, with two cars driving at each other, the easiest way to win is to rip off your steering wheel and hold it out the window. Because then the other person will think that there's absolutely nothing you can do on your side to give up the game. They have to give up. They have to drive off. Uh, and so that's, you know, a way to win. But the key isn't to actually sabotage yourself. It's to make the other party think you did. Exactly. Convince the other person that you have sabotaged yourself. And the best way to convince someone of something is for you to actually believe it. Right. Which is why you need, self, you need to deceive yourself. You need to deceive yourself to make you think you've sabotaged yourself to give you a competitive advantage over the other person. Yeah. I was going to say this reminded me of if you think about for like geopolitics, mm-hmm. it reminded me of like Iran against the United States. Okay. So that deal that we made, the nuclear deal we made with them was basically like very much in, in their favor. The only thing was it controlled their nuclear program for a, a set period of years. Right. But they got a lot of, they basically got whatever other term they wanted as long as they agreed to that term. Right. So part of me made, thought like when I was reading this, I was like, I wonder if they almost like su- convinced themselves that they were this like dangerous Islamic state uh, in order to win this negotiation or something. Right. <laughs> like, maybe. I don't know. Or like convince us that we are, that they are this very dangerous state because like if i was thinking about it to negotiate against the u.s like that would actually be a good way to get what you want maybe pre-trump for sure but trump you just don't know where he's 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 equally (laughs) he's equally playing the game of chicken exactly he's pulled off the steering wheel too well that was the one theory i'd heard about north korea Mm. was that they didn't really want nukes for military they wanted it just to be taken seriously because the only other countries that you know we actually take seriously have nukes geopolitically have nukes yeah and so that was, you know, one element. It's a great bargaining chip. Yeah, great bargaining chip. And and then two, by acting like a madman, right, then you get taken even more seriously because it's like, oh, right. what's he going to do? Right. And then Trump comes in and then they're like, oh, shit, this person's <laughs> even crazier than <laughs> yeah. we are. It's a game of chicken. Exactly. And that's why the denuclearization happens. Well, that's right? also why it's kind of scary because if you're both playing chicken, there is a chance yeah. That you're both going to like not steer away at the exact mo- at the right moment. Exactly. The cars will actually hit each other. Yeah. Thinking the other side's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the dangerous part. Yeah. There was a great Reddit thread about this that was like explaining the Trump Korea denuclearization stuff as that kind of like game of chicken yeah. or the, the crazy kid on the playground. Right. And then there's like the crazier kid who shows up and you're like, all right, I better settle down now. Yeah. <laughs> But they gave some specific tactics to seem like how to basically seem like the madman. Well, that was one of them, right? Being the madman is one of them. But then there's the closing or degrading a channel of communication. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's ignoring information, also known as strategic ignorance. That was an interesting one. They gave the kidnapping example. Right. So like, if you've not seen the kidnapper's face, there's no reason for them to kill you because you can't identify them. So most importantly, you want them to think you have not seen their face. Yeah. 
if you can see without them knowing, that's awesome. But you definitely don't want them to know that you've seen it. But then in some cases, it might actually be better to not have seen it because you might accidentally give something away. Exactly. Or you might be able to tell that there might be just something that you do that gives it away. So if you actually don't know, then you just don't know. Right. Right. So that that's like true strategic ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Or purposely believing something that's false. Yeah. Right. So if you're a military general who believes your army can win, even though the odds are against it, you might intimidate your opponent into backing down. Yeah. It's kind of like bluffing at poker. Yeah. Right. That's exactly bluffing at yeah. poker. <laughs> yeah. Although I guess in poker, you don't really believe that your hand is better when you're bluffing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe some people can convince themselves. This that- didn't say better. It said that you can win. Oh, right. Because if you win, you could win by them folding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so that's basically what the military person is doing is saying like, no, I believe we can win. Right. And you're communicating that it's like, I am going to win. And so they fold. Yeah. And then, yeah, the the less well you have convinced yourself of it, the more tells you're going to have. Right. That give away that you're not that confident. Right. So the better you can convince yourself, then more likely you are to win. And then the sixth reason for all of this is counterfeit reasons. So this idea that we make up reasons to explain why we do things or why we want things. And this is where they bring in some of the split brain patient stuff, which is always super cool. That was really interesting. So they'll do stuff like they'll they'll whisper into one ear to get up from the chair and go across the room. And then once that person is moving across the room, they'll ask them like, hey, why are you leaving? And they'll say like, oh, to get a Coke, <laughs> right? Because the brain, the part of the brain responding to the question is not the same part of the brain that got whispered into when the brain is split, it can't communicate. Right. But then instead of saying, oh, I don't know why I got up. <laughs> what should be the right answer? Your brain just makes up a reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, just manufacture something, which is just so wild. And this ex- these examples of it's narrative fallacy, like through and through, it's like, also, you know, because yeah, something is happening of. and you're just like, you're ascribing a reason to it that has really nothing to do with it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Completely different. <laughs> it made me realize, though, that's probably a natural thing to happen, which is probably why we're so susceptible to it. Yeah, because, I mean, if we do it to ourselves, then we're even more likely to do it to other people's stories. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, this disability denial is crazy, right? Where people have, they'll have like a right hemisphere stroke, so they can't move the left side of their body, but then they'll be in denial about losing control of it. Right. And so if you ask them, can you move your arm? People will say, oh, I don't want to right now. Or, oh, it's really tired. Or I don't feel like it. Like They're making up reasons for not doing it. And they seem to genuinely believe that. Yeah. Like It's not like consciously making up the reasons. It's like on their conscious level, it seems like they actually believe that. Right. Which is amazing. Particularly wild. Yeah. And this is where the press secretary comes in. Right. Right. So the, the example there or what they're saying in the book is that when we think of us, we usually think that we're the deciders, we're the kings, but really we're more like the press secretary, right? We're Sean Spicer on the podium trying to explain why, you know, Trump is doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> Yeah. Whether or not, you know, Spicy knows the real reasons, he has to make something up because the media is, you know, barraging with questions. Right. And so you're just going to say stuff. You're going to try to explain it as best you can, whether or not those explanations are accurate. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like imagining our conscious mind is like Sean Spicer sweating at the podium. <laughs> well, I think it also makes a ton of sense because the press secretary is also going to do their best job to present it in a good light. Yeah. Because you're going to do the same thing for yourself. You're going to be like, well, I did that not because I was trying to like ingratiate myself with that person. Right. It's like, I'm doing that because I'm an altruistic person. Yeah. And you're just going to ascribe the best reasons to all of your actions. Exactly. <laughs> and the worst reasons to your opponent's actions. Yep. The spicier one is really good, though. Yeah, I like the spicy one. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so they, they end this section 
pretty much by saying that we have many reasons for our behaviors, but we habitually accentuate and exaggerate our pretty pro-social motives and downplay our ugly, selfish ones, which feeds really well into the next section of the book, which is these hidden motives in everyday life. And this is where they go through kind of 11 different areas in life where this is particularly prominent. Yep. And a lot of them are areas we've talked about on the show before, too, which is kind of fun because I think it adds more light and explanation to some of these yeah. in ways that we haven't really talked about a lot, which uh, I, I really enjoyed, like ties in past books really well. Well, like body language, they even yeah, including referencing some past books. That yeah. <laughs> uh, but before we dive into part two, I suppose we should mention why we're smelling so lovely today. Yeah. What are you wearing today? You know, I'll be honest, I'm not actually wearing any right now. Well, it must be just me. That smells so good. Yeah, it must just be Neil. I'm wearing light blue. Light blue? Very nice. Which I think it's Dolce & Gabbana. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I've been using that one lately for whatever reason. I like that. Yeah, it seems like that. that's decided to be your favorite. Actually, you know, I'll, I'll grab my one so that I can list off the few that I have. It's very summery. Like, I don't know. It's not a strong scent. It's citrusy a little bit, I think. I don't know. I like it. Yeah, so I've got the Gin by Commodity, mm. which I like. And then I also got the Rag and Bone one. Oh, this is the Commodity Bergamot. So I got the Gin and the Bergamot. So I really like Earl Grey tea. So I was like, all right, I'll try a Bergamot. <laughs> well, as I say, it turn, ties really nicely to our other sponsor, who we will talk about in a second. And then, yeah, the Rag and Bone one. Let's see, which one did I get? Because so, I wanted to get ones that I hadn't you know, seen or smelled before. Right. Incense by Rag and Bone. So yeah, if you haven't checked it out yet from our past episodes, Scentbird is a monthly subscription for colognes or perfumes where you sign up and normally you pay $15 a month and they send you a new kind of one month supply of any perfume or cologne that you like. They give you a little carrier and spritzer thing for it too that you refill. And uh, I mean, it's a great, great program if you want to buy like, you know, super just like good colognes and perfumes and it's not a surprise which one you get because that's one question i've gotten before is like is like oh is it like a birch box type of thing where they send you like different ones every month and it's, it's like no it's not like that you get to pick which ones you want so you can set up like a queue you can say oh this month i want this one and you can switch it up the next month or you can get the same one and i actually kind of like the fact that it's in these small carriers instead of the full-size bottle it's much more convenient much more convenient the yeah. normal perfume bottles are just like awkward and a lot of them have weird shapes and stuff and they take up a lot of space they're made for a different era they're made for the department store yeah they were made to like look good on shelves and stuff yeah. be attractive this is a much more functional design right so because this is basically saying like the scent is what you're buying right <laughs> you're not buying the package and you're buying the ability to like bring it places with you conveniently oh yeah so you can travel with it very easily nobody's gonna say anything at tsa and i don't think we mentioned this yet made you think listeners get 50 percent off the first month you gotta use code think code think yeah and you get 50 percent. so it's only 750 for your first month which that's a no-brainer. No-brainer, yeah. To try like a premium cologne. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I would pay that much to not have to go to Target yeah. to smell what these things smell like. Right. That's probably what your Uber ride is going to cost. Let's be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then my like shitty Auntie Anne's pretzel when I give in and go to the food court. Right? Knock yourself out of keto. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you want to, you know, preserve your willpower and not, you know, have to slog through a department store and you want to smell wonderful every month for a good price, check out Scentbird. Use code THINK. And let us know what you think. Yeah. Once you do. And I guess I should also mention what I'm drinking right now. I'm drinking something delicious. Milk oolong, I think is what it's called. Yeah, this is the milk oolong. So, so I, I'm drinking tea. We we made some some cup and leaf tea yep. for Neil and I for this episode. So this is the milk oolong. This is probably probably like top three favorite teas in the yeah. world. It's awesome. I actually never tried it till today. It's really good. There's no milk in it. 
Yeah, there's no milk. At least as far as I can tell. No milk. It's just something about how they process the leaves. So it's, you know, it's a fairly like premium. It's more expensive tea. But the nice thing with the oolong is that you can reinfuse it four or five times. Oh, wow. So, you know, what I just, when I put it in the steepers and made it for us, we could keep pouring hot water over that and have four or five more cups each and it would still keep the flavor. Is there any caffeine in this? Or? A little bit. A little bit. Okay, well, that's good then. So it's comparable to like green tea. Yeah, well, that's good then. You can you can get four or five cups out of it and that's not going to be, you're not going to be super wired. Exactly. Like four or five cups of coffee and you were going to be like not working. Yeah, that <laughs> point. you're just going to be on the floor vibrating. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so this is the milk oolong. It's one of my favorites. It's also really good iced. Mm-hmm. try that next time so what i'll do sometimes is i'll make it i'll make it hot you know make one or two infusions hot and then i'll just keep infusing it to make and to fill up these little uh glass bottles to make iced tea and put that in the fridge for later so that's really good that sounds so good so you can check that out at cupandleaf.com and you can use code think you should go to shop.cupandleaf.com for the store and then use code think to get 20 percent off or if you go to cupandleaf.com slash think it'll take you to the store and the discount will automatically be applied is it 20 percent off their first order or is it 20 percent off all orders first order first order yeah. oh yeah cup and leaf needs to make some money i guess yeah i'm just kidding well yeah and to be fair that that is how most of our coupon codes work <laughs> like with most of our sponsors that's what they're doing too it makes sense yeah exactly it's a customer acquisition strategy yeah it makes sense i mean just like how uber when they give you your 15 like credit or whatever it's not all you can use it on every ride <laughs> <laughs> exactly That'd be awesome but, yeah. but since we're in the first few hundred customers actually if you do buy something from cup and leaf in the next month or so most likely uh, you'll actually get a lifetime 10% off coupon that we're oh. giving to our earliest customers. So if that's a, not an incentive, I don't know what is. Yeah. Get to cupandleaf.com. Exactly. Check it out. <laughs> Shop.cupandleaf. Shop.cupandleaf.com. The, the milk oolong is awesome. We also really like the cream roll gray. That one's delicious. You know what we could make? I just hmm. thought of this on air. I thought of this idea. What if we made like a made you think sampler? Oh, that would be great. Well, so this is the thing. This is the thing is I'm going to add a bunch of samplers for stuff like that because yeah. by far our best selling products on the store right now are the sample packs. Yeah. Well, that, I was thinking that's what I'd buy. Sampler. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what these teas are, right? You see milk oolong and you're like, what the hell is that? I don't know what that tastes like. That's what I was thinking, honestly, before I tried it. I was yeah. like, it's like, I don't want to spend 20 bucks for, you know, 15 cups of this if I don't know what it is. Right. Right. Uh, I don't think it's that expensive, but it's like confusing, right? But the sample packs are far and above the most popular. And so I'm going to add some other ones like replace your coffee sample pack. Oh, interesting. Or, you know, the made you think sample pack would be great, right? Because the ones that Neil and I really like are the milk oolong, the cream roll gray, the lopsong suchong. Yeah. Are there others that we like? Those are the three. Those are the three that come to mind. Yeah. I'll give you a few other ones to try. I'm sure there will be, there will be more, but. I've got (laughs) a French vanilla pu'er. That sounds delicious. Which I've had other versions of it before. I haven't sampled this one yet, but I bet it's delicious. Oh, I bet it's so good. Sounds sounds so good. The other thing I've had before that I really like is ginger pu'er. So I got some pure ginger tea and then I've got pu'er tea. So I might just mix it myself. Oh, yeah. You can make ones. Because I, I can't find a good source for ginger pu'er. So I assume people are just mixing yeah, themselves. Mix, mixing themselves. But it's amazing that this is a plant. Yeah. What a versatile plant. It's all the same plant. Yeah. Or like pu'er, black tea, green tea, oolong tea. It's all the exact same plant. It's just, you know, taken care of in different ways. Yeah. Like different roasts or different like different levels of oxidation. Well, we were talking about that like earlier. I think it was in the bonus content. And to find out, you should subscribe to the newsletter at majorthingpodcast.com and listen to the bonus content, which you'll get if you're on the email list. You will. But we were talking about wine, right? Yeah. All the different flavors in wine come from just grapes, grapes, thyme, yeast, and a barrel. Well, and beer is kind of the same too. It's like, think about the difference between a stout and like a Bud Light, but the 
difference in the ingredients is very minimal. There's hops, barley, water, and yeast in all those products. Yeah. <laughs> Just different roasts and different types of yeast and fermentation times. And it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. Plants are cool. Life is cool. So plants are cool. I like plants. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I guess there's a lot of variation in humans too, jumping back into the episode. <laughs> yes. And so now we can dig more into the hidden motives in everyday life. That was a bad segue by me, but it worked. Excellent segue. Yeah, the, the anti-tangent. <laughs> so the first one is body language, right? Which if you haven't listened to it, you can check out our whole episode on body language, which is, what's the title? Decipher people like the FBI. Yeah. What Everybody is Saying yeah. by Joe Navarro. Yeah. That's such a good episode. It's a great episode. One of our more popular ones too. People really, really liked yeah. it. Yeah. But the thing they mentioned here is that, you know, we talked about signals before, right? So the expensive watch or the fancy car and all of those are good signals of wealth, but they're also cues. Right. And a cue is like a signal, but it only provides value to the receiver, right? And so that's when, you know, we do like a pacifying behavior, touching our face. Right. I don't notice myself doing it, but you might notice it on a subconscious level. It's like playing poker and trying to read the other players. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, okay, is that person tapping his foot or like... Did you catch a small smile or like did their eyes light up when they saw their cards or, you know, like you try to read the other person. Where did that come from? Yeah. And so it's funny because a lot of this chapter is literally just from the book. From the book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed that I was reading. I was I was thinking, this is strangely familiar, right? I feel like I've read this before. And then they quoted him. And then they started quoting him. I was like, ah, I see. But one thing that I did think was kind of interesting in here that I don't remember being in the book was this stuff about eye contact. Oh, yeah. So the ratio of eye contact you make when you're speaking versus listening is a sign of dominance. So if you make the same amount of eye contact when you're speaking and listening, then you're in a balanced or a you dominant situation. Okay. But if you make less eye contact while speaking than listening, then you're in a submissive position. Right. That wasn't in the the book, I don't think. I don't remember saying that. I don't remember being in... uh, what everybody is saying. Yeah, I don't yeah, remember. I don't remember seeing so that was new. That was kind of cool. Yeah. But a lot of this, honestly, I would just say go listen to our body language episode and go read that book. Yeah. And go read the book. The book is excellent. You get all the pictures if you read the book, too. That's true. The pictures are really good. The pictures are hilarious. <laughs> They're so awkwardly staged. And, and it's him, I think, right? Is that him or is an actor? I don't know if it's him. Whoever it is is wearing a hilariously <laughs> oversized suit and makes just the silliest facial expressions. It's it's great. It's worth just skimming through the pictures. <laughs> that was one, like the one episode I wish we had video. I know. So we, we could stand up and do it, right? <laughs> well, that episode was funny too because I just remember the whole time we were doing it, we were <laughs> trying to constantly looking our, at yeah, yeah. our own and each other's body language and it made the whole thing just very like awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Not uncomfortable. It was no, just amusing. It, right. Because we kept noticing things being like, ah, yeah. <laughs> you touched your face. It's like, I was just itchy. Yeah. <laughs> That's your pro-social explanation. Yep. But really. <laughs> well, speaking of funny. Yeah. The next chapter is about laughter, which I hadn't thought about till reading this chapter, but it's kind of weird that we laugh. It is. It is strange. It's really strange. Yeah. And, and hopefully you laugh when you listen to this podcast. Well, the funny thing is it would make sense if you don't right. because it's such a social behavior. And they've got this stat that we uh, we laugh far more often in social settings than when we're alone, 30 times more often. 
Which makes sense. If you try to watch like stand up by yourself, it's not nearly as much fun. Yeah, it's not as funny. <laughs> right. Or certain movies I find too, you have to watch with other people. Yeah. If you watch them alone, it feels stupid, right? Like yeah. try watching Super Bad alone. Yeah. Right. You're like, this is shit. Yeah. Right. And then you watch with a few friends over a couple of beers. You're like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is the best movie ever. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, laughter is like a social way of initiating play with each other is kind of what they're getting at here. It's kind of like our way of responding to someone else's actions by saying that I perceive your actions as playful. I know you're only kidding around. Right. Right. Because there's a lot of things that we do that are funny that would not be funny if they weren't playful. It's kind of like how with guys, right? Like we definitely all tease each other. Yeah. Oh, I mean, even with women, you'll tease women too. But it's like, Especially I've noticed with guys, like if you were not friendly with them, some of the things you would say are actually mean. Oh, yeah. Right. Like very mean. Well, and the, the more friendly you are yeah, with them. The more them, mean you can be. The more mean you can yeah. be. Yeah. But I think it's also a way of showing how comfortable you are with the other person. It's like, exactly. it's like I know we're such good friends that if even if I say that, we're still going to be friends. Yeah. And you're actually going to laugh with me. Yeah. Right. And that's your way of showing that. Oh, yeah. I know you're just joking. Right. It's like it's pretty interesting how like laughter is this interesting signal it's used as a communications device basically right it's it's a way to kind of flirt with the edges of acceptable behavior right which is actually i mean why i think stand-up comedy is so valuable yeah because there are things comedians can talk about in ways that no one else can really talk about publicly right right and good comedians will do that they'll they'll toe that line and they'll toe it well they'll toe that line really well yeah i also found it interesting in this chapter where they were talking about how um it seems like laughing is an instinct for because babies do it even before they can talk and reasonably, you know, have been socialized. Right. And I thought that was interesting. And the other great apes all do it too. Yeah. Right. So orangutans, bonobos, gorillas, chimps, and like one other, all five do it, which is kind of interesting. I think we're the fifth one. Yeah. I love this Oscar Wilde quote at the end. If you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise they'll kill you. That's your point of stand up comedy. Exactly. And I mean, it, it is pretty crazy, too, because there are a lot of things that you can say in a funny manner and get away with right. that you can't say in a serious manner. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, I think the best example of this is going back to the friends things. Right. It's like like me and Adil is a perfect example. Right. Like yeah. he will I will make like ridiculous, politically incorrect <laughs> jokes with him and he will do it to me, too. And it's totally fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. I mean, you and I do that all the <laughs> right, time, we right? We, we have to delete bonus material sometimes because <laughs> we do it. <laughs> I think the best was, I think there was like 20 minute conversation before one of the Sapiens episodes yeah. that we just like couldn't use. Cause we yeah, were exactly. Because like, the deal was here deal too. Was here. And yeah, three of us were just like getting super ridiculous and offensive, but it's like not an offensive thing if yeah. you're with friends because you're shitting on each other, yeah. right? And every everyone's having fun, right. right? So it's cool. But then you take that out of context and then it's not okay. Like, can you imagine if we all were doing that on like Twitter publicly? Yeah. People would be like, what is wrong with these people? Like, are they fighting? Or they, but well, we would think it's funny. Exactly. And I could just imagine like multiple other people coming in and being like, that's offensive, Nat. You're just saying that because you're a straight white male. And, and then we're like, whoa, calm down. Yeah. He's just joking. <laughs> but I mean, that's where I have a lot of issue with. I mean, there was this case where these incoming Harvard students made a private Facebook group for 10 or 15 of them who really liked making kind of like offensive memes with each other because they just thought it was hilarious, right? So it would be like you and me. Wait, it's like a private group though. It was a private group. Okay. So imagine like me, you and Adil make a private group 
and we just or make, we have like an iMessage thread going or something. Yeah, an iMessage thread where we're all making memes shitting on like white people and brown people, yeah. right? Which is like fine because we all do that together anyway. We should do that now. <laughs> <laughs> or like shitting on rich people and CMU students, right? Like everything that you know, whatever. We shit on CMU students all the time, but we are CMU students. Exactly. So it's a, it's okay. <laughs> or, but the, I mean, this is the crazy thing. It's like Harvard found out about the group and kicked them out. What? Rescinded all of their offers. Wait, they got kicked out for that? They all got their admissions rescinded for a private group where they were making offensive jokes oh, with wow. each other, right? And that's... Was anybody in the group? Like, how did Harvard even find out? I have no idea. But everybody was, you know, they were in the group because they wanted to be in the group. Yeah. And they were making jokes that they all found funny and were enjoying together. That's so weird. Right? And... I know they're private institutions. They can do what they want. But, like, it just seems really... Like kind of messed up, not kind of messed up. It does seem messed up. I think it is pretty messed up, right? Yeah. Because there, there's a big difference between like making offensive statements in a playful manner with friends, right? And making offensive statements like publicly as serious things, and also things serious things that you believe. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, it's like pretty ridiculous. I mean, there was one joke in here that I loved. They were like talking about how like comedy is you know, the edge of. Should I say? It? I'll give the joke. Yeah, yeah. Was it the flies one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nat, what do you call a black person who flies a plane? <laughs> I don't know. A pilot. Where did you think <laughs> I was going with that? You racist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was from the book. So that's, yeah, that's a good one. But it was a good one, right? Because it shows you're like skirting at the edge of that like politically incorrect humor. Yeah, and then. Also, the uh, wasn't there a theory? I think it was, were they saying it's a theory that they don't fully endorse, but they think there might be some truth to it, to laughing being like a relief, nervous energy relief. They were saying that was pretty much disproven. Right. Right. So, that was like a very Freudian. But you definitely feel some like with jokes like that. Sometimes you do laugh at it. It's like, oh, God, <laughs> I can see where you would think. I can see where that theory would come from. Yeah. Right. Like where it's like uh, it might seem like a nervous tension relief kind of thing, but it's it's maybe you're laughing as a signal of like, oh, I get that you're just playing around or something like, yeah, there might be some other reason for it, but I can definitely, you can feel the nervous energy. Like when I said that joke on this podcast, I bet half of you were thinking like, uh-oh. Where's it going? Where's this going? <laughs> so. I mean, I think that's what bugs me about that Harvard decision so much is that if if we have to be careful about the things we joke around with, with our friends yeah. in private, right? Like that's kind of a scary world. That's like an Orwellian. Yeah, like, it's very Orwellian. And that, to your point about Twitter, too, it's like Twitter, I get is being slightly different because it's a public forum. Yeah. Right. Like the private group thing is I'm not saying like Twitter should suspend people who make things, you know, like I get that's also too far, in my opinion. But like the private group, I don't even think is controversial. It should just not be done. Well, and I think the bigger issue, too, is that is extrapolating that people who make jokes believe things they are joking about. Exactly. I was just thinking about this because we were talking about a deal. And he sent me a text the other day. I guess Ronaldinho, the Brazilian oh, right. soccer player, is trying to marry two women. Yeah. And so and then my, my joke response was like, ah, oh, first we let people of different races marry. And now like this. Right. And that's like a pretty <laughs> offensive thing to say if you say it seriously. But as a joke, it's like really funny. Right. <laughs> right? But I bet he thought it was funny. Too. Yeah, he thought yeah. it was hilarious. <laughs> and so it's if somebody took that out of context, though, and said like, oh, obviously Nat doesn't think that people should like have interracial, have interracial marriages, right? It's like, that's absurd. Well, it's absurd for many reasons. One of which is that like, you're in an interracial relationship as is a deal. <laughs> as is a deal, exactly. <laughs> Who's the one on the receiving end of this joke? <laughs> like, but that, that's sort of the problem with it, right? Is that like, these things can be funny 
you know, partially because you don't believe them. Right. Right. Like that's <laughs> where some of the humor comes in. Yeah. And I think that's where I have a hard time too with the arguments that humor normalizes bad behavior. Mm. Right. Because people do make that argument that, oh, if you make racist jokes, that makes racism okay. Right. And I don't know if I find that compelling. Do you? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I can kind of see where it could make stuff seem more okay than it is. They, I mean, they actually gave a good example in the book of uh, prison rape. Oh, right. Like people will make jokes about, oh, don't you know, like don't drop the soap. Right. Right. Which is like a pretty terrible thing to joke. Right. About. If you actually think about it. Like, yeah. Yeah. When you actually think about it, you're like, wow, that's that's pretty that's, fucked up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I I don't know. I, I kind of feel both sides to it. I, and I think it's also um, it's different when you actually like if it was like a real thing, like if it was not in a joke context. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, I feel like now probably people don't say this, but I definitely know when we were in school. People would say stuff like that exam raped me oh, right? Yeah. or like I got raped by that exam. Like maybe now people don't say I don't know if people say if you're in school, tell me do people still say that because that was very common like five years ago, I would say five, six years ago. Right. When I was in school, like, people would say that. And like you're yes, you are making a rape joke. You're using the word yeah. rape in a jokey context. But like if somebody you knew got raped, you wouldn't be like, oh, haha, that's so funny. It's like, like an exam, right? Yeah, Nobody would say that. It's an that. exam. Like, you know, but you know what I mean? Like right. you're not really normalizing rape by saying that exam raped me. I know. But people make that argument that it makes the behavior okay. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I don't buy that. I don't really buy it. Maybe there are. If you can think of an example, like let us know. But I can't think of one where like because you know when it's a joke. Yeah. You should. You should know when it's a joke. At least. But I, there is also an element of, you know, you you can make jokes in the wrong audience. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. If you were at some type of like, I don't know, I'm trying to picture like a fancy New York, like very liberal audience um, upscale party and you made that joke about the Ronald yeah. Dino thing. Somebody would get offended. Oh, you would be screwed. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> well, and that's the problem, too, with jokes where it's much harder to know if somebody in the group is like within what you're making a joke about. Yeah. Right. So if you're you could make like uh, a Jewish joke in a newer group of friends and not realize that like one of them is Jewish and going to be offended by it. Right. right. And then it's kind of like on you for screwing that up. Yeah. Right. Which, which is a point they make in the book, too, that like you break norms sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's a line, as we were saying, right? Like the best comedy sort of like skirts that line and stays on the one side of it. And then it very quickly goes into bad comedy if it goes too far. Yeah. But it's hard. Like that's the comedian's job, I guess, is to skirt that line and stay on stay or stay on it or on one side of it. Well, I like that he had the quotation from Bill Burr in here. Yeah. About how uh, well, so the quotation from Bill Burr is uh, Burr says, I'm worried every time I see a comedian apologize mm. just because you took what I said seriously doesn't mean I meant it. You don't get to decide that you're in my head and that you know my intent. If I'm joking, I'm joking. Right. Which is a good way of putting it. And also Burr is kind of famous for trying to lose his audience hmm. and then getting them back. Huh. And so if you watch his stand up, sometimes it's weird because you'll hit a point where you're just like, wow, I don't like this at all anymore. Yeah. But then he'll win you back. He'll pull it back. <laughs> yeah, he'll pull it back. Like he's so good that he can deliberately take it too far and then bring the audience back, which is cool to see in action. That's awesome. I got to check that out. Yeah, he's a good performer. But yeah, I mean, just the the laughter as a way of signaling that it's okay that you made that joke or that statement is pretty interesting. Yeah. And it also explains why it's fun to do the more dangerous jokes, right? It's like 
a deal is one of the fewer people I will make that, you know, interracial marriage joke with because I know that, you know, we will both find it funny. <laughs> right. Right. But and he will know you're not actually advocating for although you never even said you were advocating for that in the joke. No. But, <laughs> like he would he would definitely not take it the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. But but then the flip side of that is the trying those jokes with friends you are less close with can also be like a polarizing technique, right? right? It's like, we're either going to become better friends after this, or this is going to get really awkward, (laughs) right? And it's in some ways that's useful too, yeah. right? Like testing out your audience. I mean, personally, I kind of like doing stuff like that with newer people I meet, like talking about controversial things to see how they take it, because that will usually give me a pretty good signal pretty quickly if if we're going to have a good time talking together for the next two hours, or if I'm just not going to like this person. Sometimes there's a comfort thing though, too. Like, for example, I've definitely joked about your perfect Scandinavian hair and your like uh, foreignness. Hitler's love child. Hitler's love child yeah. is how we've called it before. <laughs> and uh, like I've joked about that. But then I would imagine if some random person that you just met was like, hey, Nat, do you ever know you look like Hitler's love child? Yeah. You might be like, who like, does this person think they are? <laughs> like, yes, I've thought about that. But <laughs> or it could be a good barometer that they're comfortable making those kinds of jokes. You might you might get along with making those kinds of jokes. Yeah. Or I would try to make them uncomfortable then. <laughs> I would say like, I would say like, yeah, are you part of the party too? Right. <laughs> Just to see what happens. right? <laughs> Especially if they're not white. Oh, right. Like yeah. that, that would, I think, make it even funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess like. Yeah, actually, the barometer thing is not a bad example then, because if you'd made that joke back yeah. and they liked it. And if it, they rolled with it, then it's like, oh, we're going to be best You're going to be really good friends with that person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas if they were like, like, yeah, then you might not be so good friends with them. <laughs> They're like, uh, what, what, what party? Is yeah. There? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, but that's kind of where it's a cool tool, right? Is that we can use laughter to judge our relationship with other people. And also indicate that we're like not to take it seriously, like play. Yeah, that it's playful. Which is where I think deadpan humor gets kind of interesting too. We're spending a lot of time on laughter, but it's just kind of fun to talk about. Yeah. But I, I mean, I personally love deadpan humor type <laughs> stuff. I, I think it's really fun, yeah. especially because my dad does this too. We're both very good at being stoic and making these extremely deadpan jokes where it's like it gives everyone kind of a momentary awkward pause. There was one on the podcast, actually. I've done it a few times on the podcast. Where and then my, you, I think I don't like fully register what you said for a second. <laughs> and then you're like, you're like, that was the weirdest face you've ever made at me. <laughs> where I'll have this like very confused look. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what it was exactly. You know what it was. It was definitely an episode. Well, so my favorite way to do it is to just make shit up in groups of people. Yeah. Right. So like give a completely bullshit explanation for something and then be dead silent at the end of it and just like wait and see if anyone calls you on your bullshit. <laughs> and then it's especially funny if someone like runs with it and they're like, yeah, that that was completely that makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> was the plastic bag thing made up? No, it wasn't. No, it was that was <laughs> Well, it's bad, though, because I do this so often that, like, Cosette doesn't believe me half the time when I say stuff now. Neither will our listeners, apparently. <laughs> we need footnotes at the end of each episode. Like, here's all this shit Nat made up this time. <laughs> we should throw some Easter eggs in there and just see if people start sharing these false stats. Actually, no, that probably won't be good. No, that would be, be bad. We haven't done that yet. Because then it's like the online thing, yeah. right? You know, if, if people start doubting the show, then they won't know what to believe. <laughs> Well, they should be reading the books themselves. And then although if they go on Amazon and the Amazon reviews say, don't read the book, listen to the podcast instead. That actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Someone emailed us about that, that they did not buy Sovereign Individual. They just listened to our. Well, I don't know if that person didn't buy Sovereign Individual, but they said they heard of Made You Think by looking at an Amazon review. 
which basically said, do not buy this book or just listen to the Made You Think episode about it. It's pretty funny. Which is a good compliment. Yeah, that's a great compliment. Still think I'd recommend the book. The book's a good book. Oh, yeah. I like the book a lot. I didn't agree with his full commentary, but I, I voted it as a helpful review. So did I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Selfishly. So that more, more skeptics would listen to the podcast. Although we were very complimentary about the book. Yeah, we were. We're very pro book. But it's also, it's a long book. It is a long book. It's almost 500 pages. Yeah. And it's fairly dense at parts. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's not really broken up that well either. Yeah. If you can listen to a two hour, you know, conversation where we're goofing off half the time, or you can read a 500 page book, most people will pick the yeah. episode. But you don't get the signaling of having the finished book on your bookshelf, which is the downside. Especially because that book does not have a Kindle version. It does not. Yeah. So, so. it has to be a physical book. All right. Next one is very relevant to us. Conversation. Hmm, we never do that. No, we never do that. What are you talking about? I hate conversing. <laughs> but I think the most interesting thing in this is that we think of conversation as exchanging information, but that really doesn't hold up because if that were true, then we would keep you know a tally of how much information we've given and received from people. Right. Which we don't do. And we would be more eager to listen than to talk. Yeah. But you've ever spent any time with another human being <laughs> especially us you know that people much prefer to talk than to listen so there must be another explanation and the one they give i think is super compelling that yeah. we converse to prove we are a reliable source of new and good information and that means that we're likely to make a good teammate especially when you face unforeseeable circumstances in the future well we've all been there too where it's like the people who we've i always go back to like the dinner example there's like people who you just like can have a four hour dinner with and the conversation never gets boring. And it's those are the people who are you're just like want to hang out with them more because you're like, I know one, this person's always gonna have interesting stories. Two, I'm not gonna be bored and it's gonna be fun. Yeah. And their point about the allies and even for mates too. It's like, you know, if you're looking for like a boyfriend or girlfriend, it's like the people who are interesting to talk to, that's definitely a plus. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Because, you know, a woman can be super gorgeous, but if she can't be interesting, that gets bored out. You get bored after a little while. And we've all been there too, right? So, well, I like the analogy they have here of the backpack with the tools. Yeah. Where we're each walking around with a backpack and we can pull any tool out of it. By pulling a tool out, it makes a copy of the tool and yeah. we can give those tools to anyone else. And so, by conversing, we're showing off what we have in our backpack. But they give the example of if a friend comes up to you and says, Oh, I'm thinking of building a birdhouse. And you say, Oh, here, you know, have this wood. They're like, Oh, that's amazing. But, you know, I still need some nails and a hammer to put it together. They're like, Oh, here, I've got a hammer and nails too. Right. <laughs> they would pretty quickly start going, like, What else do you have yeah. in that backpack? Right. <laughs> yeah. If you seem to know something about everything and be like useful in a lot of circumstances, then you are proving your value as a member of their their clan. Right. Well, that's where like reading and curiosity, I think, are super undervalued in our society. Yeah. Where it's like, it's hard to get deep enough knowledge of anything from reading like BuzzFeed to like be able to converse in a deep manner to like for the backpack analogy to apply, right? Like if all you read is BuzzFeed, right. there's not going to be a whole lot in your backpack. But if you're listening to Made You Think every week, yeah. you're going to have a pretty full backpack. Or even just like reading books like Goldilocks or Bach yeah. or Sovereign Individual, like we were just talking about, or Antifragile, of course. But like these are like timeless type of books, which, you know, they're not that old, but they're about so many, they're topics that are so relevant still and were relevant back in their time and are likely to still be relevant in the future. Yeah. It's just your, your backpack gets very full with cool concepts. 
And it explains why we find certain conversations more or less stimulating. Yeah. Right. Because if I'm hanging out with someone and they're pulling out all of these tools about, you know, football stats, yeah. like, I don't care. Yeah. Really. I don't really follow it. <laughs> right. I, it's, it's fun to drink beer and watch it with right. people, but I, I don't care about the info. Yeah, right? exactly. Or, you know, if someone's pulling out all these stats on like social gossip or celebrity stuff or yeah. any of that, it's like, all right, it's not you know, useful information to me. So the conversation is boring. Right. Whereas if you're talking to someone and they're pulling out like book recommendations or, you know, we're talking to someone about like business stuff or whatever, right? It's like, oh, philosophy these are or like, yeah, yeah. philosophy, whatever, like these are useful. And that, that sounded really pretentious, that whole uh, sentence just now. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's the tools that are interesting to you are the ones that are like useful. Well, that you're viewing as they're going to be useful to you down the road or now even. Exactly. And so that's probably where conversational like fit comes in too. Oh, definitely. And they say too, like that's why staying on topic is kind of valued because you want to keep exchanging tools for the same project. I remember I read that sentence and I was like, oh, the tangents. Yeah, the tangents. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's where it gets bad is that we don't want to be rude because as soon as you start talking about something, now I have to talk about it to show you that I know about it too. Yep. And then you have to show that you know about it too. And we're just pulling everything out of our backpacks. Actually, that's been the amazing thing to me with this show is that we haven't totally overused all of our examples for stuff. I know, it's wild. Yeah, we, we managed to not completely repeat ourselves every episode although we do mention a few things in every episode probably anti-fragile jordan peterson crypto crypto although that's been less lately yeah we've been better about that partially just because it's down at least as of this recording it's yeah it's not as high as it was six months ago i think we talked we ended up talking about like sexual relationships yeah. most episodes evolutionary biology I feel like these, I don't know, maybe these, I think these themes just like apply to everything. Pretty universal. It's kind of like anti-fragile. It's like, I feel like you can apply that book to pretty much everything, pretty much everything you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't exhausted that yet. Also, the books we're picking have a lot of their own stuff too, like new stuff. So yeah, that's what helps is that we have the books as the jumping off point. Yeah. So, all right. Consumption. Consumption. This one's a fun one. Yeah. Well, they're all fun, but this one's very fun. We already talked about this one a a decent amount too, which is helpful. But I mean, basically the gist is that we buy shit to look good. Right. Well, that's the gist, but then I think we we got like the early part of this, like the signaling part, the competitive signaling. Yeah. But then there's a few other details, right? So like I love the Prius example. Oh yeah. So for the Prius, like everybody knows that a Prius looks kind of unique, let's put it that way. Ugly. <laughs> Ugly. <laughs> And it's according to these authors, at least, that it was a very conscious choice by Toyota to do that because the people who were buying that Prius, they wanted to do it to show that they were environmentally conscious people. So it was a signaling tool. Right. So if you made a car that looked like a Camry, but just had all the same specs as a Prius, it wouldn't do as good of a job at, at that. But by making this very distinct, effectively uglier design, yeah, it really shows like, hey, I'm valuing the environment way over your shallow design purposes, right? Like, right. I care so much about the environment. I'm going to drive around this ugly car. Well, and I think that's why the Tesla has done so well is because it manages to signal both right. wealth, wealth yeah. and environmental consciousness. And so you get like both yep. in this kind of like sexy, very standout design. And I mean, the impressive thing with that too is that you immediately know it's a Tesla, even though right. it's not that different of a body shape, right? But you can tell. But you can immediately tell. They've done a good job of connecting that. Yeah. Well, I would even argue it's the same thing with like the Hummer when the Hummer oh, was yeah. a thing, right? It's like the exact, it's like, I do not care at all, right? About this, like, yeah, I don't know. Just in that same sense, they they made that design choice specifically targeting you know people who are trying to make that uh, signal with that purchase. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And then uh, the other thing that I thought was really cool was the lifestyle ads. 
Yeah. I never, I never thought of that. That was interesting. But it made sense, actually. Yeah, no, it made perfect sense once they explain it. So I'll explain with the Corona as the example, right? It's like, well, assuming you think of this when you think of a Corona, why do we think of a beach when we think of Corona? And their ads are always with people drinking Corona at the beach. But there is nothing about Corona's recipe that makes it like more or less applicable to the beach than many other beers that are out there. Yeah. But so the one theory is it's Pavlovian, right? So when you see a Corona, you're going to think of the beach, which you're going to be associating with like relaxing and good times, vacation. So they want you to associate that every time you see a Corona. So you're in the store browsing, you see Corona, you're like, ah, beach, vacation. I'm going to pick that one up. So that's one theory. The other theory is that you think that other people will think that this is going to associate with the beach. So when you're going on, let's say, a beach trip and you're responsible for bringing the beer, you're going to bring the Corona, not because you fell for the ad, but because you assume other people exactly. <laughs> fell for the ad, which actually that was the best argument I've ever heard for Super Bowl ads. Yeah. So it almost doesn't matter if your ad is believable. It's just that because you know it was on a Super Bowl ad that you are going to have this feeling that everybody else has seen this ad. So you're going to fall for it. Right. Effect- like it doesn't all... It- almost doesn't matter that you didn't fall for it. Your behavior is still going to be exactly the same. Still going to be affected. Yeah. Well, and also how that applies to luxury goods too, right? Like BMW has to show ads to people who can't afford BMWs as well. Right. Because it's not just enough for rich people to want BMWs. Like poor people also have to believe that BMWs are a luxury symbol in order for rich people to want BMWs. It has to be like a universal belief, basically. Well, and also that element of car ads being just as much to reinforce the beliefs of people who already own them as to sell them. Right. (laughs) Right? It's really just creating this lifestyle image for the car, right? Like Mini, I think, did a great job of this, where it's like, you know, the Mini was pitched as a unique, you know, you're an individual, right? Like you don't look like other cars. You're, you know, it's extra small. It's all of these things. And their ads are kind of funky to play on that. Right. Right. And that's what makes everyone think that that is what a mini is. It displays this funky independence when really, I mean, there's nothing special about the car that does it on its own. It's just how it's marketed in that lifestyle way. Yeah. And it's kind of cool then to think about, you know, some products can be advertised very utilitarian, right? It does this thing really well, or they're marketed just based on these lifestyle qualities. Well, and it's also interesting what qualities brands will emphasize or de-emphasize based on who they're trying to connect with. So like, for example, no one will ever tell you Guinness and Bud Light have basically the same amount of calories. Mm. But like everybody thinks of Guinness as like a heavier, manlier beer, right? And they do that on purpose. Yeah. They don't want to put light or anything like that on their name because that's not who they're trying to target, right? But like, if you actually look at the nutrition facts, they have basically the same. So they could make that claim if they wanted to, but it's actually detrimental to their advertising if they started going with that. Guinness is actually also surprisingly low carb. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It is. It's yeah. like lower than most other beers. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing. Which is pretty wild. Yeah. You wouldn't think that you could have Guinness when you're trying to stay in keto, but it's if you have like a pretty limited menu, it's one of the better ones you can pick. I think it's like that or like the light beers basically are your choices, right? Yeah. Like the, you know, the Miller 64 or whatever. Yeah, it's like so Guinness is like a surprisingly good diet beer. Yeah. But they would never advertise no, it like that. Absolutely not. Because they try to give like the more like, yeah, you're a man, you drink Guinness, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a strong beer. But really, like alcohol percentage wise, it's really, really low. Really? What is it like for? It's about the same as Bud, Bud Light. And uh, in Europe, it's even less. Well, in Ireland, I don't know about Europe, but in Ireland, it's like 3.2 or something. Weird. It's really light. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess they're drinking it all day. Right, exactly. Well, that's why I think is like, I think in Ireland in, in general, the beers are lighter in England too. Yeah. For that exact reason, like their sessions are just so much longer <laughs> than, than ours. 
but yeah, it was just interesting, like what characteristics people would have. Like they really emphasize the dark color. Right. Right. But that doesn't have anything to do with the calories. <laughs> yeah. It's literally just the color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Art was an interesting chapter. That was the next chapter. Yeah. Art was interesting. I mean, the this whole idea that's come up a few times now that what we find attractive sexually is waste. Yeah. Right. Because if you can waste resources, then you are proving that you have resources. You have so many resources that yeah. you can waste. Yeah. Uh, th- this quote, this quote from Joffrey Miller that uh, he says, we find attractive those things that could have been produced only by people with attractive high fitness qualities, such as health, energy, endurance, hand-eye coordination, fine motor control, intelligence, creativity, access to rare materials, the ability to learn difficult skills and lots of free time. And when you think about it, most things that we see as attractive fall into those camps. Yeah. It's like the luxury goods, obviously, the physical fitness, right. the conversational abilities. Travel. Travel, yeah. I mean, like men who can hold a group in conversation, right, are very attractive. Yeah. Right, and that indicates some amount of like social fitness and all of that. Yep. And it also shows that, I mean, to be able to hold a group of people in conversation, you have to have experienced some things or know some things, right? Otherwise, what are you talking about? Having a hobby you're particularly good at, right? That's pretty attractive. I mean, all of these things have this element of kind of waste, right? And then art, we tend to value because of our belief in the effort and like skill that was required to create it, which is why we want to see originals. Right. The whole point about the Mona Lisa is so interesting. But yeah, nobody would want to look at a replica of it because the replica doesn't take any effort to produce. I mean, you can go look online for the what the Mona Lisa looks like yeah. anytime you want. <laughs> it's not the same. Right. Because right, we want to see the thing that required all the effort. Well, wasn't there that survey of like if the Mona Lisa burned to a crisp? Would you rather look at a reproduction or the ashes? And like 80% said the ashes. Yeah. Which I kind of believe. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I'd be more interested in that too. I mean, it's like, I mean, people visit like graves and stuff, right? Like graves, there's not like the person is not really there. Yeah. Right. Especially people who are, have been alive during the era of like TV and movies and stuff. It's like you could just go watch their movie to see what they were like. Right. But people want to go visit. Like it's almost like a holy site. Exactly. To go to like, well, that's the ashes thing would be exactly that, right? Like, I bet that would be an exhibit in a museum if that ever happened. Hopefully it doesn't. But so here's a question. Do you think that that's really the Mona Lisa in the Louvre? Ooh. Right. So let's just say I don't have enough information to know yes or no, but I would I would assume so. But I could be I just don't know. (laughs) My thing is that I just find it impossible to believe that they actually have the real one out. But at the same time, I find it impossible to believe they could cover that up if they did. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's like that would be such a big conspiracy. Yeah. Because you would need to get everybody in the museum basically on board with that. And all the people on the turnover you might have. Yeah. It's like people leave the museum. They have to never talk about it. Right. And, And then no mistakes. Yeah. And no mistakes. Like it has to go back perfectly each day. That alone makes me think it is the real one. Yeah, that makes me think it's the real one. But then also, I mean, you go and you see it. It's not really that well protected. If someone was motivated and, you know, had like a little paintball or something, it'd be pretty easy to fuck it up. Yeah. They must have. They must have something over it. Yeah, they must have something over it. But still, I mean, even like just some other chemical or something, right? It's like the Louvre is not that well. Like it's not. Yeah, not crazy security, right? You just bring a little vial of like acid or something. I'm not recommending anyone do this. I'm just saying it seems like concerningly that's easy. like all the museums it's like what they are right yeah like, it's true i guess human nature is maybe just not as bad as we think right yeah that's probably it too right it's like 
there aren't like tons of people running around trying to like figure like scheming to <laughs> destroy this art because there's like there's literally nothing in it for them except maybe fame right i guess it's kind of like the school shooter type thing well that's what i was going to say it's like we talked about on a past episode right it wouldn't be that hard to you know get a gun and go on a rampage in new york city or you know drive your car through a bunch of people the remarkable thing is that it doesn't happen more often yeah. i would actually be curious though to do potentially an episode if there's enough there on school shooters yeah like the mentality like because there have been writings and manifestos and stuff i'm just like yeah. really curious yeah, like to leave behind the call line yeah i'm just like really i mean we've tangentially gotten to like looked at that but i'd be curious like is it the fame thing is it they're just so nihilistic like That'd be an interesting topic. Yeah. Because then it'd be, I'd be curious to see why exactly what you're saying. Like this type of stuff just doesn't happen that much, which is great. It's awesome. But it's just kind of surprising in some ways too. Yeah. I bet the Mona Lisa was real actually. Now that we're talking about no, this. we're talking about, yeah, maybe it's real and they've just got like really good glass over There's it. no way that conspiracy would work. Be, yeah, yeah. the conspiracy would be too hard to pull off. Especially think about how many people work there. I mean, yeah. not everybody would have to know. I've heard, I don't know if this is true either now that we're talking about it. I've heard the dinosaur bones in museums aren't real. Hmm. The ones that are on display. Interesting, but well, some of them they're like you can just reach right out and yeah. I although that would also be a hard conspiracy to keep too. That would be. They must put something on them though, just to. I'm sure there's just be like air like degradation. Well, no, no. I mean, like what what I've heard is that like if you go to the Smithsonian, right, and you see like dinosaur bones, it's not real ones. They're they're fabs based on the real ones that they have, you know, in storage where they're not going to get eroded by the air and exposure to the elements, right? That makes perfect sense. Especially that that should not be out in the air it will, you know, yeah, yeah, it's like bone and it's been around for millions of years, yeah. right? Like you should protect that shit. <laughs> it seems absurd to me that they would actually have it out. Maybe they do. Maybe I, I want to look into that one. If someone knows the answer or somebody works at the Smithsonian. Yeah, that would be an interesting question. We'll look it up later. People are going to think we're like such conspiracy theorists now. Tune in next episode <laughs> to find out if the dinosaur bones are real. And then we'll talk about UFOs. Actually, no, you need to subscribe to the newsletter. I'll we'll tell you the newsletter. <laughs> make it even harder <laughs> yeah we'll also explain uh what is it world trade number seven yeah. is that the building <laughs> alex jones will be our guest next week that could be an interesting episode someday the conspiracy theory episode that would be interesting like roswell new mexico yeah uh, kennedy kennedy 9-11 i guess I don't think that one counts. No, it would be interesting to like look into. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look into the arguments, right? Yeah, what do people talk about? What else? What's another good conspiracy? Um, the moon landing. Moon landing. There's a good Mythbusters episode on that one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Tell us of any conspiracies you want us to investigate. If you want us to do a conspiracy theory episode, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so let's hop into charity. We've got a few more of these to do. Uh, so, I mean, the biggest thing with charity is just that people donate in very inefficient ways mm. so it's like the the most effective way to donate is giving money to the against malaria foundation because thirty five hundred dollars will save a life or right? it's pretty crazy yeah right? like donating thirty five hundred dollars to carnegie mellon is not going to save anyone's life it's probably going to make someone's life worse right <laughs> so why do people donate money to colleges and high schools when they could be saving kids from malaria that's one thing i never understood though honestly yeah. like yeah i i just can't think high schools maybe there's some argument for depending on what you're actually donating to for the high school not just like i don't know like some useless thing that you could be yeah. donating to but like a lot of the university stuff it's like so much of it goes into administration and like well and also these schools like harvard and yale and stanford that have 10 billion plus endowments yeah. right it is literally a hedge fund with an education <laughs> section right like that is what those schools are now and they do not need donations yeah so it, it's absurd that people do that. But again, you know, this kind of well, this explains, explains it. Exactly. Right. It's it's mostly 
you know, so first, 95% of all donations are given in response to solicitation, right. right? So we only do it when asked. And then we're mostly doing it when asked because it makes us feel good, right? It makes us feel good. It makes us look good. That's like one thing I really like about um, like Good Street, which I think I mentioned to you before, goodstreet.org. So it's goodst.org. Okay. They're not a sponsor, obviously. It's a nonprofit. But basically, it's like it's subscription. So you pay, I think it's, the choices are like $10 a month, $25 a month, $100 a month, and they might have a higher tier. But that's basically, I think that's like, those are the three tiers. So you pay the monthly subscription and then every day they send you an email with one cause and two charities that they vetted for that cause. Oh. And then you vote on which one you want to donate your, you know, I think if you're on the $10 a month one, it's like a quarter, like 30 cents or whatever. It's like based, it's amortized, of course, over cool. the 30 days. And they do it every single day of the week. And uh, yeah, it's like a way for you to donate without having to make the conscious choice and take the time to do the research either. Nice. So you can like outsource that stuff effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have like some connection to like effective altruism and like they, they have a lot of those types of like that's the metrics they use are always the like I think GiveWell is what they were talking about in yeah. this book. Yeah. So GiveWell is like how they're they're using efficient. That's how they're defining efficiency. Okay. There's like a GiveWell score. So then they'll be like, okay, today is, is malaria or something. And they'll be like one. They'll have one that has the number one on GiveWell and one that has number two. Okay. and then that's what they'll have are there really enough things like enough causes um, and charities to do this every day of the week so they'll do uh some that are city-based right so let's say there's like a natural disaster somewhere they'll do like something for that place right okay. or they'll do like um i know on the weekend they've been doing a series lately with like different small cities in the u.s and they've got a sponsor for that which is pretty cool yeah. so it's like st louis they did they did like rochester they did like buffalo they did like like smaller cities and it'll be like food banks or something it's like super micro right but it's again it's like an organization like that even if they get like a thousand bucks through this actually can make a difference yeah right maybe not the most effective from thirty five hundred dollars to save one life but i guess like that was one bone i had to pick with that section was like malaria is just one thing right there's like a million other things out there too that people are also suffering from so effective altruism uses one like a one metric it's like a dollars to lives basically but that's not like like it's hard to quantify between quality of life and just saving a life. You know what I mean? That's fair. Like someone could be suffering like horribly, right? And how do you quantify like the suffering of Alzheimer's versus like malaria? Isn't that better than, you know, dying a terrible death when you're 15? No, it does suck, right? Yeah. It does. All I'm saying is though, there's like, it's very hard to quantify, right? Because like think about like Alzheimer's is like a great example. The costs of Alzheimer's are way more than that one person because it's their family. It's like, that's like a terrible death if you think about that. But you could apply that to the kids getting sick and dying from malaria. Too, no, right? I agree with that, right? So yeah. I'm, all I'm saying is like you can't do like a one-to-one comparison, in my opinion, the way effective altruism does. Like I'm not a big fan of just using one metric in anything. Right. Right. Like I just I always find that there's like probably variables you're not accounting for. Yeah. I don't know. I it I find it like I find it noble. Yeah, that would be more justifiable for donating to than saving people from unnecessary death. But, there, right? but there's so many types of unnecessary death, right? There's like hunger, there's like childbirth, right? There's like tons of different things. Well, yeah, and those are bad too, but their point is that- That's the cheapest this way is the to save. cheapest way to save a life. Yeah, but you're also, you're saying a life. It's like each person is the exact same. Like, you know mm. what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I just don't find that to be uh, that- what's the right word for it? Like um, rigorous of an argument. Like it's a, yeah. it's, it's better than not having an argument, right? I think they're like, so I get the point that right. they're trying to make. I just don't think they're fully there yet. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to, because it's like the best worst argument. No, it is. That's what I, that's exactly what yeah, I mean. It's like right? the least bad argument. Yeah. Well, like, and so like, here's what I mean by that, right? So if somebody, let's say you save someone from malaria, 
so they don't die when they're 15, but then they die at age 20 because they're in this like internal civil war in this country that has like, you know, it's like Rwanda or something like that, right? Or they die from like bad water two years later. Yeah, you saved the life from malaria, but then like they died from hunger a year later. Well, yeah, but then then you move on to hunger, right? (laughs) You got baby steps. So I think, yeah, it's like, I'm not saying we shouldn't solve malaria. Yeah. I think that's like definitely a noble thing to go solve. I'm just saying it's not the like dollars to lives is a simplistic way of looking at it. It's better than not having any way to look at it. Right. But it's just not the full picture yet, I think. I think you just don't want to save people from malaria and you're making this up (laughs) to explain that. Because I don't like Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you just hate Africans. (laughs) It's pretty savage. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And if anyone is not sure, Nat is joking. He is joking. That's why we laughed. You see, it's it's a communication that we're playing. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I get it. I, I think it's just, it is also in its infancy because the field didn't really exist like 20 years ago. It right. seemed like, right? Effective altruism is somewhat new. Well, and I think the, the harder question too is like, okay, well, what would a better metric be? Right. right. Do we like weigh people's lives differently in different countries? Right. Like that seems right. bad. Too, or like right? paired causes as well, right? Because like I would imagine the places that have malaria is a huge problem. They probably also have clean drinking water as a problem and mm-hmm. hunger could be a problem and civil war could be a problem. Yeah. And, like there's probably like other paired issues there as well. Well, probably the best first step. I mean, not dying of malaria is a good first well, step. Well, that's a good first step. But I was going to say the best first step is not giving to these really inefficient charities. Yes, that's 100% true. Yeah. Right. So like Red Cross is oh, like yeah. pretty terrible, but everyone gives to it. I'm shocked at how how they've been able to protect their reputation. I think most people just don't research this mm-hmm. stuff, right? And they yeah. hear like, oh, disaster, I should give to the Red Cross. And then they get on Facebook and they give to the the charity and they don't really like look into it. Well, the Red Cross in particular has some like horror stories from different disasters. Like I think like Haiti was a big one. Yeah, where they just like spent almost no money. It, like all gets lost on internal stuff yeah. and horrible inefficiency. Susan G. Komen's another one. It's like pretty bad. What is that one? The breast cancer one. They do the, the race for the cure. Oh, okay. Yeah, they probably raise tons of money through that. They raise tons of money. They get tons of donations and they're also like a pretty ineffective charity. Mm. There's just like so many like that that people will give a lot of money to. And it's a lot of the most well-known ones. Right. Which is weird, actually. Yeah. I mean, from that context, right? It's like things like this make so much more sense. This is way better than that. Yeah. Right. Because people give, it seems like right now to the ones that are most known. Right. And they give to them because they're the most known, but they're not really effective. Yeah. I also don't like how some of these, like I think the Red Cross might be one, but I definitely know the United Way is one Mm -hmm. where like the administrators make so much money. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with Susan G. Komen. It's like the CEO makes millions of dollars. Yeah. There's <laughs> bonkers. It's like, there's no way you can call that a nonprofit. Honestly, a college board is like that too. College board is a nonprofit where like the compensation is absurd. Well, it makes me think of Hollywood movies, yeah. right? Hollywood movies are all nonprofits. Really? Well, they're not uh, They're not created as nonprofits, but they are designed in a way to not make a profit. Oh, so they pay out all the money. Yeah, kind of like in salary. And uh, like, they have a few other vehicles they use to do it. But so actors who are going to get compensated and like profit from the movie never really get any money because the business that owns the movie or because they spin up an independent business for each movie. Right. And then that business is structured in such a way that it really never makes a profit. All the money kind of like trickles into the people who start it. Uh, And so the people who are going to make money on the residuals usually don't make very much. Oh, that's really interesting. It's only in the indie movies or the movies where it's like structured in a special way that the actors, you know, do actually get money. Interesting. Or I'm sure the actors know that, too. Yeah, the actors know that, too. It's like fairly well known. That's so interesting. I never knew that. So I think a lot of charities do that, too. Huh. It's these big charities that are pulling in tons of money. So if they know there's going to be like 50 million left over, it's like, okay, we should just pay it's it out. Increase everyone's salary. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, we still didn't make a profit, right? Yeah. Everyone's got great salaries. Yeah. But. Damn. That's actually, I almost view that as way more malicious than like 
even like a predatory banker. At least the predatory banker is like they know what they're doing. <laughs> well, and at least it's like it's like written in their job description that they are a banker. Yeah. So they're for profit. It's like more. Um, I, don't know, I feel like there's something from Taleb that's related here. It's like they're not hiding their. Yeah, they're not hiding it. They got like skin in the game yeah. in a way where it's you know it's like very clear that you know this is who I am. They're not trying to hide behind some other facade where you're saying, oh, I'm a nonprofit executive, but I yeah. make like more than most executives of for profit companies. Yeah, that there's something like extra disdainful about that. Yeah, agreed. I've really enjoyed the next section though. Education. This is this might as well have been called like Nat's chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was a lot of points that we've talked about before, right? So, you know, one, kids don't really learn very much in school, right? If you test somebody a year after they take a class, they don't really do much better than someone who's never taken the class. The national GDP doesn't really go up that much with extra education, but individual earning does. Right. And kind of all these elements. Wait, that, so how does that work? Is it like a net? It's because it's a zero sum. Oh, interesting. So your, your net worth goes or your income goes up because you're taking the more prestigious jobs, but the economy isn't necessarily getting better. Right. So nothing's really improving in the system. Right. Just you are just getting into a higher position, which just makes it then really weird that society would encourage education. Right. Because it doesn't actually help society. Exactly. It just <laughs> helps the individuals. Right. But looking at school as a filtering mechanism, you know, is pretty enlightening. Right. Like if you graduate from Harvard, it doesn't mean you learned a ton. It means that you, you know, survived. Right. It's it's kind of like the coin flipping right, of the Russian roulette. Right. Right. It's like just because you were the one in a thousand who survived a thousand rounds of Russian roulette. That math isn't quite right, but <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're really good at, you know, not dying a Russian yeah. roulette. It just means that, you know, you're the one who made it through. Right. Right. So the kid who makes it out of at the end of Harvard is actually probably worse off than if they hadn't gone because of all the extra like stress and, you know, the domestication that comes from schooling and all of that. But they made it through that ringer. And so it's like a easier filtering mechanism for recruiters, for companies. Right. Right. It's like, okay, well, we at least know that we're getting someone who can make it through. Exactly. Well, and also most of those people have made it through too. Exactly. So they're yeah. getting people who are similar to them. So they're going to reinforce that kind of tribalism. That, right. Well, I am special because I did this. And so you must be special too, because I want to feel good about this. But I also really liked this element of, you know, school as domestication. Right where children are expected to sit still for hours upon hours to control their impulses, to focus on boring, repetitive tasks, to move from place to place when a bell rings, and even to ask permission before going to the bathroom. That's such a weird concept in hindsight. It's really absurd. I mean, this is how I like treat Pepper. It's like my dog has to ask to go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I, I decide when she gets to do that, th right. that stuff. And like, that's how we treat kids. Right. That you're training them to not act independently or to make their own decisions. Yeah, you're discouraging that. Yeah. Which is a really bad thing you would think to like yeah. create independent like successful adults well and i think that's why there's that you know the adage that a students work for c students right right because the really really high performing students are the ones who are most domesticated right because it's you know they say here teachers reward children for being docile and punish them for acting out that is for acting as their own masters in fact teachers reward discipline independent of its influence on learning and in ways that tamp down student creativity yeah they don't want that. Yeah. If a kid is like shouting out the right answers right before the teacher finishes the question, <laughs> the teacher will punish that kid. Right. Which will make that kid not want to learn the material as much anymore because the teacher cares more about order, domesticity, right? And yeah. order than about, you know, an individual student's performance, right? Which technically is the only way you're going to make a classroom work. Right. Of course. But for an individual, it is punishing, right? Like you lose out. Yeah. So. And then also this element that like children are trained to accept being measured, graded and ranked often in front of others, right? Which 
serves as an exercise in human domestication. Right. It trains you to accept your fate being like put in a hierarchy. It's very disciplined and punished. Yeah. Right. It's very Foucault, right? That well, he even talked about prison and yeah, prison and school, right? It's like a similar model. Yeah. That you learn to stay in line and not get out of line, that you're supposed to fit in this order. You're not the master even of your own body. Like you can't you can't just go to the bathroom. You have to like ask. You can't speak when you want to speak. Right. Yeah. You can't even like yeah, get up and walk around or take a break or, you know, you're not allowed to get bored, right? Like take your phone. In that sense, I liked college. Like college is at least what you would hope uh, encourages independent thinking a little bit more than not even a little, definitely a lot more than high school and middle school and elementary school. But you should expect that because you're actually an adult by that point. Yeah. So but like you don't need to ask permission to go to the bathroom in college and you don't have to even go to class if you don't want in college most classes it's like not really part of the grade yeah so if you have the answers you have the answers although for some of them which is why i always thought like the required attendance classes were so absurd yeah they were so weird yeah did you have many of them i think i only had one that i can remember that did i had a number of them i mean it was a bigger thing in the philosophy department because there's a lot of discussion yeah. classes so i mean that makes more sense even if it wasn't required you kind of had to be there anyway because it was like 30 percent of your grade was going to be your discussion participation right well it might as well be required then yeah but like a math class right that has required attendance all that really says that the teacher is insecure about their ability to be interesting exactly like it reflects much more poorly on them than give any useful benefit to the students actually the one i'm thinking of now that you mentioned the discussion thing I actually don't think it was required attendance. I think it was just discussion was like 40% of your grade. Yeah. So that makes actually a ton of sense that I felt that it was required. <laughs> well, and to be fair, I like that kind of required attendance. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and especially... Especially if you like the class, you want to go talk exactly. about it, right? It's entertaining. And those classes are never boring. And there's some subjects which they're not conducive to exams. Yeah. Like discussion is a way better method. History is a perfect example. But it was a history yeah. class. It was exactly it. So yeah. history, philosophy, art, yeah. probably. Yeah. But then there's this other element in here that they talk about that we know that certain styles of teaching don't work as well. Right. Like frequent exams and waking up early and... Oh, that waking up early part was... You know, teaching by like sections, you know, like we're doing this section and then this section and then this section, right? Linear style doesn't work as well as kind of like interspersed and coming back to things a lot. Well, if you think about how we do it in the show, even it's all interspersed. Yeah. Like we're not doing like, oh, this... This month, we're going to be covering like psychology and next month we're going to be covering history. It's like all these concepts relate to each other so much. Yeah. Even the idea of subjects in school. Yeah, it's kind of odd. It's kind of, like I get why you need to do it, but I also it makes you think every subject is independent of the other, which is like totally not true. Right. Like it would be so cool if they related like science and social studies in school. Like there are so many interlinking points between those. Well, and I find too that the subjects that I'm less interested in, I learn better through other mediums, mm. right? Like I feel like I've learned more about history from philosophy and even some like science stuff. It's almost like a backdoor into it. Yeah, it's like a backdoor <laughs> into it, right? Or, or the biographies, right? Is a great way to learn yeah. history. Or I mean, I, learning math through physics was so much easier than learning math in math classes. Yeah, there's something to connect. Yeah, it was like something more tangible. Yeah. Well, think about it. Our brains are not built to think about like numbers in the abstract. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> it's just like, it's actually weird yeah. that we can do that. <laughs> like, I mean, it's not weird. Yeah, it is kind it of is weird. weird. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's strange. No other animal think about numbers in abstract like right. that. It's extremely weird. Yeah. So when you tie like physics, like, our, you know, with physics, even just like introductory physics with like a ball going up and coming down and something, there's a physical object there that you can picture in your head doing something. So it's just so much easier to think about it in that yeah. context. Yeah. Like, I remember that's what one reason I thought calculus was actually easier than some of the other math subjects, 
because it is basically the language of physics. Right. And when as soon as the teacher explains it that way, then you're like, oh, this is just the velocity. Yeah. Or this is the acceleration. And it ties together so much easier. Otherwise, it's just like first derivative, second derivative. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what this is about. Uh, but I guess we should say the, the elephant in the brain with school is that it's not actually about learning. It's about signaling. Yeah. Right. And it's a way for you to signal that you are a, you know, obedient, successful, like member of this you know, expected means of conforming to work society. Right. Right. It shows employers that you will be a good employee. And it shows that, I mean, I think for parents too, right? It's a way for parents to signal that they succeeded. Yeah. Right. Parents push their kids to go to good schools because it makes them look good. And they can talk about right? it. They can talk about it. They can wear their like Yale sweatshirts and stuff. <laughs> like, oh yeah, my kid goes to Yale. All right. All of that. And, you know, makes them feel like they succeeded. And they're very much sold on that. Yeah. Right. I think that the the prestige of these good schools is as much a mechanism to get the parents to push the kids to go to them as it is to get the kids to go. Definitely. Well, they're ultimately the ones footing the bill in most in many cases. Yeah. Or the government is with loans and stuff, which you ultimately are at the end of the at day. At the end of the day. Yeah. But no, I was gonna say as much as we shit on on schools though, there is some positive signaling you get out of it because like think about it. Let's say you were hiring somebody, you wouldn't want like a pure free spirit creative person. <laughs> Right. Because like you have deadlines and yeah. you have like I'm not saying like that's proved by school, but somebody who has finished school, you would hope at least could meet a deadline. <laughs> yeah, you would still. I mean, I'm not, it's not guarantee. Right. But school usually does have deadlines. <laughs> uh, I think I'm I think I'm so deprogrammed of like treating school as any indicator of like intelligence or ability. I'm not saying like the specific school, but I'm saying like bringing some person who's like never been in any kind of deadline type of environment even if they were super creative, they'd be really hard to put into your system. They might be able to come up with their own system that they could then hire other people for. They might be great entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right. But what I mean is like, they might not be good employees at all. Yeah. Right. So when you're looking at hiring somebody, you might not like the free spirit person. They might be too creative for you. Yeah. Like I've definitely come across people when I'm looking at hiring where I'm like, you probably shouldn't be working for me. You should be doing your own thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's true. You definitely have more ideas than <laughs> like you're even if you did start working here, you'd probably be bored in three months because you want to go work on your own. Right. Thing. And bored and quit. You don't want that. Which yeah. as an employer, you're not you probably don't necessarily like, OK, I, I'm, I'm on the fence with this because I've definitely had bosses who encourage me to pursue my own projects. And I try to do that with people. But I also don't want people who are going to leave in like two months. Yeah. Right. Because that like kind of becomes a sunk cost issue then yeah exactly you're gonna have to go find someone else so i can see like where there is some value to this whether it's school or some other there might be some other means of uh signaling that you can meet deadlines and like i'm not saying the current model is like great yeah pretty shitty but i can also see like why you do want to make people not like 100 percent creative free spirits if they're going to be employees yeah right so like if you want to be an entrepreneur it's not helpful at all (laughs) right i don't think well, I mean, and there's a lot of stuff too, where it's like, even if you recognize it as mostly a filtering mechanism, right? Yeah. Like people who survived the gulag, right? Well, you will at least meet other smart people there, right? Who have also made it that far. That's true. Yeah. And so that might also be one of the big values, right? It's like, maybe you don't really learn much at CMU, but you at least meet other people who like got into CMU. Right. Right. And so that can be valuable in of itself. Right. And I guess if you meet somebody who you didn't necessarily go to school with, but who also graduated from the same school, you know, you both made it through the same gauntlet, basically. Yeah. Like that, that's something I've heard about 
places like Harvard Business School and stuff is that you don't actually learn very much there, but you spend two years with other people who also got into Harvard Business School, right? And in that sense, it is valuable, right? Because those connections are really useful. So from a network standpoint, from a network standpoint, it's great. That's probably like the best best case argument for it. Yeah, I think that is the best case. But that also is a great argument then for not having as many colleges. Right. Because if you're not in that... Well, that's the thing. It has to be elite. Yeah. It has to not actually be about educating. It has to be about filtering. Right. Which is why, like they say, we haven't franchised the Ivy League. Yeah. Because it has to be exclusive for it to continue to be valuable. If everyone can get a Harvard-level education, right. then nobody cares about it as much anymore. Which is like probably why maybe those schools haven't embraced like the online degrees as much as some other schools have. Although some of them have some of them like have, MIT, yeah. Stanford. No, I'm not saying like making their courses open. Oh, the degrees. I'm saying like, can you actually get the degree? Like, can you get a Stanford degree without yeah. ever setting foot on Stanford's campus? I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. No. I'd be surprised. You have to get accepted and go through the process, right? Because right? they need to keep it exclusive. Which actually makes it even more about the signaling and network, because it's like anybody can get the courses online, right? For free. You don't even have to pay anything. They even mentioned that that you could like go into the classes. <laughs> yeah. So, so then we just got a couple more here. Uh, I think we'll quickly wrap up on these ones yeah so medicine i think the big thing here is that we get much more medicine than we need yeah mostly as a way to show that we take care of each other right so we take each other to the doctor and we bring food and we like go get treatment to show that you know i'm doing this for you so that when i'm sick like you should do it for me and so the other people in the tribe see that oh neil's the person neil's the kind of person who takes care of someone when they're sick so when i'm sick neil will be there for me it's a good signaling yeah i should like him and hang out with them well it was also interesting how the amount of medicine people consume didn't really correlate to better outcomes <laughs> exactly so it had like i'll just read this from the book that and i think it kind of summarizes the section perfectly so investigators reported that people who reside in rural areas lived an average of six years longer than city dwellers non-smokers lived three years longer than smokers those who exercised a lot lived 15 years longer than those who exercised only a little in contrast most studies that look similarly at how much medicine people consume fail to find any significant effects yeah. Which shows you it's not really about the efficacy. Right. It's much more of this effect that you're talking about. Medicine is still useful for saving lives. Agreed. But for general life extension, it doesn't do that much. And we use a lot more medicine than we need. Yeah. Like it's, I think you've brought up this example before. It's like no one's advocating that, like, if you get shot, you shouldn't go to a hospital. Right. <laughs> but if you have a cough, like, don't go to the doctor. Yeah. Right. Just wait it out. Drink some cup and leaf tea. <laughs> and then religion. Mostly, again, it kind of goes back to the sacrifice and commitment thing. Yeah. Like you're proving you're a member of the community by sacrificing some of your freedom, resources, personal identity. Your skin in the game and some of this. They brought up that a lot. You're, you're showing that you are committed, right? Wearing a yarmulke says that I am part of your tribe and it tells other people that I am part of this tribe and I represent this tribe. Well, and again, there's a, a sentence in here. It goes, most religions are fairly lax on questions of private belief as long as adherents demonstrate public acceptance of the religion. Yeah. Then they point out, too, that Christianity and Islam are actually weird in that sense, yeah. that you have to have this faith in mythology to be a good member. Yeah. Whereas most religions, you don't have to have that. You can be a great Hindu, Jain, uh, even Jew without really believing in any of the mysticism. Yeah. Well, it's much more about the community. Yeah. It's the community aspect, being a contributing member of the society. Yeah. And then politics, pretty much the same thing as religion. Right. It's mostly a signaling thing within the group. We don't vote in our best self-interest. We vote in the interest of the community and to show that we are a member of the community. Right. And also that there's a lot of very single issue voting. So there's this very common trope that you'll hear liberals say, like, why do people in middle America, you know, vote Republican? Because mm -hmm. they should be wanting the 
like tax or not tax, but like the social benefits from the Democratic Party. Right. But that's not the issue that they're voting on. Right. They're usually voting on more like social issues. Right. And so and then again, it's like a community thing. You're showing loyalty to your community by who you vote for and whose sign you put in your front lawn yeah. and then all of that. Plus just showing that you're a loyal member of the Democratic community by voting. That's a good point. And by being politically active, right? Wearing the sticker and going to the polls and all of that. You saw this in 2016 when uh, people would, I remember after the election. Yeah, I was like, did you vote? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There were all these posts like, if you didn't vote in this election or if you voted third party, like you're the problem. Yeah. yeah. Which was very interesting. It was like, it was almost like a tribe or something. Not almost, it was a tribe. Yeah, loyalty signaling, virtue signaling, yeah. right? It's like you're a bad person if you didn't vote. And obviously, like the connotation below all of that too is that if you didn't vote for Hillary, then you're a bad person. Right. Right. It was that it was always what I thought was weird when people were like, make sure you go vote, make sure you go vote, make sure you go vote. I'm like, you're only saying that because you think that the people are going to vote for who you voted for, yeah. right? Like, you're not even checking first. <laughs> if somebody's voting for the other person, you don't want them to go vote. That's a terrible idea. That's actually a good point. Yeah. If you go encourage voter turnout for the opponent, then that's actually horrible. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, and then when people are like, no, I want everyone to exercise their civic duty. It's like, shut up. No, you don't. Well, do you remember the part in this chapter where he was talking about how there was one election where he tried to make like the yeah. pros and cons call, but he was like, it was the worst election I've ever participated. He's like, I had the least amount of fun. Yeah, I wasn't satisfied <laughs> yeah. at all because I didn't feel like I was, you know, rooting for one team. Right. It was just like a pure transaction. Yep. <laughs> right. Whereas when you've got this like sports element to it, it's more fun. You're more invested. Maybe our uh, AI overlords will just pick our leaders for us or they'll just be our leaders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll install a human figurehead, maybe. Exactly. But. Yes. Then they get into the conclusion with some takeaways. Um, you know, the biggest thing is that we ignore the elephant because doing so is strategic, right? Yep. Self-deception lets us act selfishly without having to appear selfish in front of others. And we have this gaping blind spot at the very center of our introspective vision. If we're going to second guess our coworkers and friends, we shouldn't give ourselves an easy pass. Yeah. Knowing more about our blind spots should make us even more careful when pointing fingers at others. And I think that's the biggest thing from it too, yeah. right? Is it's really easy to see other people doing this. The hard part now is noticing when we do yeah. it. So encourage everyone to to think about that a bit. Buy the book. It's a great read. It's a fun read. Fun read. Fairly quick. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It yeah. looks longer than it is. It's not Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. The last 35% of the book is notes. Yeah. I was so worried about finishing this book on time. Yeah, me too. It was on Wednesday and I'm like, I'm only like halfway through it or whatever. I didn't realize I was almost done because I was thinking there was a part three based on the amount of time yeah. that was left in the book. I was like fuck, I'm not even in part three yet. And it's already like Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing. I, and then I, I went to the uh, table of contents and jumped to the notes. I was like, oh, okay. Which is cool actually to see. That means they had everything pretty well cited. Even though I didn't yeah. check their citations. They could have been citing like the most random things. But, but that is a nice thing about this book is they don't waste pages. That's right. True. It's very concise. It's a lot of information. It's yeah. very concise. So it doesn't feel like it could be a blog post. Yeah, definitely not. Which is always nice. Yeah. So anyway, if you like this book or at least our episode on the book, go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com, click through Amazon through the Amazon link on the support page. Yes. Buy the book there or um, you can support any of our other sponsors by buying things through all the links are on there now. All the links are there. Yeah. So we got Perfect Keto. We got Four Sigmatic. We got Kettle and Fire. All of those will give you a nice discount and support the show. Cup and Leaf as well. Cup and Leaf. will give you 20% off. Code Think as well. Yep. Also Code Think. And yeah, I mean, 
Obviously, biggest thing, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, tweet about it, leave Amazon reviews for books that we've covered, saying people should just listen to the episode instead. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Support the authors that we talk about. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, we actually like reading the book. We, we like reading the books. Yeah, we don't want to take away from them. And but. if you want to read along with us, just uh, make sure you're on the email list because yeah. we will tell you when you know when we have what books we're covering. We just sent out an email. We did. Probably by the time you read this, we'll be getting or not read this, listen to this. You'll be we'll be getting ready to send another email. So uh, make sure you're on the list before that. And we will see you all next week. Yep. Cheers.